my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea. And this is Valar Reredis, a journey through the books for people who have made the journey before, brought to you by people who have made the journey many times. Germ has said before, and will say it again, this series was designed to be reread, and we're your tour guides on this journey, but even we doing this full-time can't catch everything. If you're watching live, feel free to submit live questions or comments. And if you are ahead of the game, you can send questions and comments before each weekly episode directly to email or on one of our social media outlets like Facebook, Flick, Discord, and Slack. You can find the links to those in the description, whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening to the edited podcast version. Check out the Isle of Faces, that's the Scraps and Scrolls edition in particular, but the whole podcast in general, that's Joe Buckley's show. You'll find his thoughts and comments and, and insights in every episode of Val Iriridis. Same goes for Nina Friel, whose thoughts can be found on goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's Allie with one L. Ditto her thoughts and insights all throughout this episode and almost all Valerie Reedus episodes in general. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This week, only four chapters. Deviating from the usual five because these are long chapters. It's about the same amount of time we usually cover audiobook length. So it's the same rough amount of pages. But like I said, long chapters. So let's get to it. The first one is Sansa 6, A Wedding Where No One Dies, a.k.a. the one where Lysa loves loudly. John 9, The Gang Fights a Turtle, a.k.a. the one where Jano Slint arrests John. Tyrion 10, Making Tyrion Lannister a Murderer, a.k.a. the one with the Mountain versus the Viper. And Daenerys 6, a tale of two slaver cities, a.k.a. the one where Jorah is banished. Yay! <laughs> she has been waiting for that one. <laughs> She's not the only one. This time around, as far as themes and patterns and a bit of overview, I detect a theme of the tortoise and the hare with a lot more violence. The tortoise and the hare is a classic story told as one of Aesop's fables. Uh, Aesop was a Greek man, a story this was about maybe 15 centuries ago that this story was told or created, or at least that's when we think it was created. Anyway, it's old, and it's been interpreted a variety of ways. So that, that's how long ago it was that tortoises used to race hares? Yeah, that was in, a normal thing back yeah, in the day. <laughs> you just walk down a street, city street and you'd find... Like, oh, they're racing again. <laughs> yeah, it's times were different back then, I tell you. 
The basics of the story are simple. An arrogant hare, a slow but steady tortoise, and a one-on-one race. The hare gets out to a quick lead and seemingly cannot lose, but through overconfidence, blows it. Well, Oberyn Martell is more of a snake than a rabbit, and usually you root for the tortoise in that story, but eh. Oberyn does at least leap once during the fight, and while Gregor is more commonly seen as a dog or a giant, the emphasis on his thick armor is, eh, it's a reasonable nod to the tortoise. And he's certainly slow, that fits. Aesop's fable comes in many versions, though to be fair, I'm not aware of anywhere the tortoise crushes the hare's head after winning, but there's probably something out there like that. <laughs> in the chapter just before that one, John and his Night's Watch brothers do battle with a turtle, a type of protected battering ram more commonly referred to in the real world as, well, a tortoise. This time it's the tortoise getting crushed, and when this happens, Pip yells out, the turtle was stuffed full of rabbits. Look at them hop away. Hmm. Likewise, Daenerys has her men disassemble ships to make a battering ram protected by a turtle. The Miranese, lacking ice-filled barrels and standing atop a much lower wall, are distractive, figuratively caught napping while the sewer rats sneak in. And though it doesn't happen in this book, in her next chapter, Danny won A Dance with Dragons, we get this line, man wants to be the king of the rabbits, he best wear a pair of floppy ears. Today we start with Sansa. She's slowly but steadily learning, and while Littlefinger is known for his arrogance and taunting, he could certainly find himself overtaken by Sansa. And all the talking he does in this chapter, all the spilling of secrets and bragging, well, it kind of feels like overconfidence is a trait he definitely has, and it could be part of his downfall. It's too bad Sansa's not the rabbit in this metaphor, because randomly, Sophie Turner has a rabbit tattoo. Yeah, hmm. Anyway, justice... That's another majorly present theme here. John is unjustly imprisoned by Slint. Daenerys ponders if eye for an eye style justice is the right way to handle the slavers. And of course, judges both Jorah and Barristan's crimes. Tyrion's chapter joins this theme rather straightforwardly given his sham of a trial. And the chapter we start with today, Sansa again, involves Littlefinger explaining quite a lot about Tyrion's situation and how... Littlefinger himself is responsible for a lot of it and his rather weak justification for pinning murder on him. So let's do it. Sansa 6, a wedding where no one dies, aka the one where Lysa loves loudly. It's a chapter where Littlefinger explains a lot of the plotting that even an attentive reader might have missed. This is meta because an attentive reader also knows not to trust Littlefinger's explanations. And that's part of what makes it so meta. If you're aware enough to distrust Littlefinger's explanations, you'll be misled. And isn't that backwards? Well, yeah, normally he lies a lot. And that's even more meta because this is also the chapter where he explains his sigil, the Mockingbird, a bird that in real life is very, very practiced in deception, which brings us to perhaps the greatest meta of all. Most of what Littlefinger actually says in this chapter is the truth. Of course, he uses it to manipulate But still, technically, technically, it's the truth. And that's part of the trick. That's the best kind of truth. (laughs) There's a lot said in this chapter in general. Like I said, we've got a lot of long chapters today. This is Sansa's longest of the book. In fact, it's her longest chapter to date in the books, although she will have one that exceeds it in the next one. The first line of this chapter is, The ladder to the forecastle was steep and splintery. So Sansa accepted a hand up from Lothar Brune. The first part of the journey is hard for Sansa physically, but emotionally as well. She's still haunted by visions she 
pictures Joffrey choking in front of her. And of course, that's not nearly the only thing that's gone wrong in her life. She's obviously very confused about what's happening now. Her future is completely up in the air. She's been in the Red Keep since early in A Game of Thrones. She hasn't left. Well, we haven't seen her leave at all until now. We only saw her arrive and she only had one chapter before getting to King's Landing. And that one chapter was on the way to King's Landing. So this is different yet. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The storms make the travel difficult. Ships don't sail as much this time of year because of the storms. It's autumn. That's what happens. Littlefinger made that point when he left the city in the first place. He claimed he had to hurry because of the autumn storms. And it's, well, it's believable because everyone knows about the autumn storms. It helped sell the lie that he was not anywhere nearby. But in fact, he was. By the way, the fact that it's been autumn for a little while now, since we know autumn was coming and Littlefinger left a while ago, well, that implies winter is coming. Hmm. Lysa will say, you look too much like Kat. And she's pretty rude. Surprisingly so. Well, not surprising to readers, even first-time readers, because they've seen Lysa with Catelyn. But to Sansa, it's very surprising. Kat herself was also surprised by the reception her sister gave her and just in general how she treated her. Now that reminds us there's so much here that reminds us of Catelyn's journey earlier in the books. Catelyn faced storms on a ship. Catelyn had a scary climb. Catelyn tried to conceal her identity and got way too much attention from Littlefinger. In addition to the comparisons to her mother, we've noted several along the way prior to this chapter that she shares with Arya and there are more here. Arya has been changing her name constantly. Sansa now joins the club. A man fell overboard getting Arya across that raging river when she was with Sandor. Well, she's still with Sandor, though not for much longer. And one dies in these storms as well. So each, each Stark girl watched hapless sailor die, helping her get from place to place. Of course, neither Sansa nor Arya had any say in the matter of these boats or being on them or who was in charge or any of that. So it's clearly not their fault, but it's still a parallel event, I suppose. One thing that does not reflect well on either of them, meaning Catelyn and Sansa, is their thoughts on bastards. We've been over that with Cat many times, no need to rehash, but Sansa really doesn't like pretending to be one. To be fair, she pushes forward bravely as usual, and she doesn't really complain. She kind of exclaims, uh, but then she gets used to it pretty quick, does what she needs to do, and that's, that's pretty Sansa for you, really. She, even when she doesn't like things, she handles it pretty well, ends up doing what she has to do. She pushes forward. And in fact, it ends up being kind of a good thing in a strange way. Uh, she gets better perspective, I, I think. Maybe it's a good positive thing. She, she thinks about John differently. And well, that argues that her take on bastards is a nurture, not nature thing. It's not something that she inherently believes. It's something she's been taught. Kat, of course, never learned the reasons Lysa was hostile to her, some of which were fair. We went over that at the time. Lysa has very legitimate grievances. But the very large one was not, meaning not a legitimate grievance, which is the huge lie about John Aaron's death. <laughs> While I suggested that Littlefinger isn't lying all that much in this chapter, like I said, he's extremely manipulative. And well, Lysa is an example of that. She is one of the biggest recipients of his manipulation. And her feelings towards her family are one of the feelings that Littlefinger has seized on to manipulate. 
A major example is how he tries to frame all this situation as a game. He tells Sansa, you like games, don't you? And she's like, well, uh, what, are you, I don't, what are you talking about? Games here. Very creepy. This is so not a game. And it's, I suppose you could say it's a common <laughs> way for people to manipulate younger people to make things into games. Or it's, it's been done. You've seen this trope in movies and TV and other books where usually an older man does this to a younger woman. And it's meant to be as creepy as it seems, I think. Sansa points out Tyrion isn't guilty. Littlefinger brings up Tysha. Now, he exaggerates about this for sure. Tyrion wasn't tired of her. And Littlefinger surely isn't aware of the lies behind the Tysha situation, meaning the setup part with Jaime and, and Tywin and all that. But still, it is true that what Tyrion's basic treatment here of his ex-wife, but it is irrelevant as well as true. He essentially says, my justification for pinning murder on Tyrion is how he treated Tysha. But Tysha was nothing to Littlefinger. This is not, this is not justice. Even if, little, even if Tyrion deserves something for that, Littlefinger's not the man to be the decision maker on this. That's not how it works at all, Peter. He tells Sansa she's not going to Winterfell. And as she's dismayed by that realization, this manipulation, of course, he ramps up the manipulation by saying, oh, I'm marrying Lysa. This is not how friendly, non-manipulative people deliver news to people they care about. He gives her terrible news then because he knows she's a very courteous person, mentions the marriage, and of course, being a courteous person, Sansa regains her composure and has to utter some pleasantries and congratulations because that's also how she's been trained. And Littlefinger capitalizes on that. So she has barely time to register this deception before she's being given this other major news. Classic manipulative tactics. He's also very interested in talking about how smart he is. He loves describing how smart he is. It functions quite well as a character trait, actually, because, hey, it allows several kind of tricky plot points to be further explained, to make sense of them. A clever character used cleverly, we could say. Now here's one of those lines. It is a rare thing for a boy born heir to stones and sheep pellets to wed the daughter of Hoster Tully and the widow of John Aaron. That's true. It is a very rare thing for that to happen. Now, of course, he's using this to get things from Sansa, to get promises and secrets and, and silence from her. Among the things he explains are a lot of things we've already gone through. We don't really need to rehash them, but I'll at least go over them quickly to remind us what they were. Littlefinger explains the purple wedding. He mentions that Olena did the poisoning. Now, keep in mind, Littlefinger wasn't there. He knows who arranged to get the poison. He knows that she was in charge. And he mentions that she's not as decrepit as she looks, not as, as old as she seems. However, again, I think the thing that matters most is he wasn't there. And why would Littlefinger be kept in, in the planning? Why would they tell him exactly how they were going to carry this out? So take that with a grain of salt. Littlefinger explains the Kettle Blacks. That's another one. He's talking about how uh, Cersei thinks they're hers. Tyrion thinks they're his, but they're actually mine. But he does mention that he's losing control over Osmond a bit. As in Osmond getting the white cloak and getting a little, feeling a little more powerful. He's starting to act a little more independently. And something we're going to be talking about a lot more in A Feast for Crows and Beyond is the fallout of the Kettle Blacks. Because that's a thing that's hanging over the books right now. It's, it's very much in progress like kind of a just before things really break down. Littlefinger also explains how a lot of things are going to go. He predicts the end of the Tyrell-Lannister alliance, which, yeah, 
I mean, that hasn't actually happened yet, but it's happening. It's fraying. There's all sorts of problems. Cersei's back in charge. Kevin's dead. Mace isn't very bright. <laughs> There's a, a lot of things are happening. So Marjorie's trial. I mean, you can see how this is definitely falling apart. So Littlefinger's prediction was very much accurate. And he, he makes this interesting point about Loras and Joffrey and how one of the reasons that Joffrey had to die wasn't just because Tommen is more easily manipulative or manipulated, although that is a big deal. It's because they foresaw what almost happened with Jamie and Robert. Meaning Cersei says, if Jamie ever saw Robert do this, if Jamie ever saw Robert do that to me, for example, hitting her or a couple of the other things he did, Jamie would not have controlled his temper and would have drawn his sword and gone after Robert right then and there. And then he's a Kingslayer all over again. And I don't know what, 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 ha- what happens if that happens. That would have been a whole big to do. They were all worried, meaning they, they meaning Olena and maybe Mace Tyrell, but at least Olena, that the same thing would happen with Jor- Joffrey treating that Marjorie that way. And Loras, hot-tempered as he is, which we have definite proof of, he would also go off on Joffrey, kill him, draw his sword, do something. And then all of a sudden, there's a Tyrell Kingslayer. So this is also, by the way, an argument for Loras not being included in the plotting because hot-tempered guys eh, or girls aren't usually the best people to bring into a plot. Maybe, you know, you want to keep people who uh, have more or more even keeled, who, who don't have these moments of weakness where they say things that shouldn't be said. Another thing, uh, going back to the weak justification for pinning the blame on Tyrion for this murder, we get foreshadowing that he'll kill Lysa, who helped him pin the blame for John Aaron's murder on Tyrion's family. And there is some serious, serious fruit symbolism going on here. Quote, he tilted his chin back and squeezed the blood orange so the juice ran down into his mouth. I love the juice, but I loathe the sticky fingers, he complained, wiping his hands. Clean hands, Sansa. Whatever you do, make certain your hands are clean. So it's a really over-the-top metaphor done on, on purposely so, showing that mixing the concept of literal clean hands with clean hands, meaning no one can accuse you of being involved, meaning there's nothing tracing you to this crime or this scenario or whatever, whatever it is that he happens to be referring to. Of course, in this case, it's various murders. <laughs> there's some serious irony, though. I, I'm so tickled by the fact that George R. R. Martin makes these long, long descriptions of food, but they're one of the very few descriptive indulgences of the series, meaning George is incredible at double and triple and quadruple meanings, hidden themes, nods, references. Sometimes you read a very, maybe a mundane sentence and realize later that there was all kinds of meaning in there. But most of the time, the fancy food descriptions are just fancy food descriptions. But here, plain fruit and honey, uncooked, ungarnished, just regular old fruit and honey and some wine maybe, which comes from fruit, tells a big story. While Littlefinger avoids getting his fingers sticky, Lysa is a bit sloppy with a honeycomb in this chapter near the end. She gets it on her fingers, licks it off. Littlefinger licks some off her face, which, while also being cringeworthy, I mean, they do this right in front of Sansa, is a reveal. He's just gotten through explaining to Sansa and us how clean hands means being above suspicion, meaning your secrets are safe, all that. Lysa's be, literally being sloppy with honey at the end of this chapter, like getting it all over herself. 
which is a clear evidence that she can't keep her hands or even face clean, which means, like Dantos, she can't be trusted to keep secrets. Blood oranges pop up a lot. They're often symbolic of revenge. A couple people in our comments sections of the different, our different social media platforms mentioned this, that blood oranges, especially around Doran Martell, are a big deal. The, there's the first scene we see him where the blood oranges are just dropping from the tree, splattering on the ground and rotting. And it's a symbol of how Doran has waited too long for his revenge. His revenge is overripe at this point. <laughs> I liked the example of Arya too in a Game of Thrones when she's talking to Sansa. Mm-hmm. He goes, liar. And her hand clenches the blood orange so hard that red juice oozes between her fingers. Ooh, nice. That's Just a good one. Yeah. Striking. Very Arya. Yeah, really. It's true. There, there maybe could be a full episode or essay or something on just blood oranges. (laughs) There's a lot to it. But there's more fruit here. It's not just the honey and the blood oranges. We've got a major piece of pomegranate symbolism. Littlefinger cuts a pomegranate in half and hands the other half to Sansa. Well, that immediately is supposed to, probably, supposed to remind us of the Greek myth of Persephone. Now, honestly, let's not be too, let's be careful here. Pomegranates are symbolic in a lot of cultures, religions, and traditions. You look up pomegranate symbolism and you will find a ton. But once you hear the example of Persephone, if you're not familiar with it already, you'll understand why it's an incredible fit for Sansa. If you look up other pomegranate symbolism, you'll find some other decent fits, but we're not going to go through all of them, especially because this one is so darn perfect. And it also fits nicely with the Aesop's fable bit since this is Greek. This is all Greek myth stuff. So the story of Persephone is... No, it's all Greek to me. (laughs) hey oh. So the story of Persephone basically is that she was forced to marry uh, the god of the underworld because she accepted pomegranate seeds from him, which are, for some reason, a symbol of permanence and devotion in this this setting. And thus, she was unable to escape this arrangement. However, Persephone was close to Demeter. I think, is Demeter her mother? I don't recall. Anyway, Demeter... Another is a goddess who has some clout and is like, hey, give back Persephone. And there's a big argument, maybe a little battle, whatever. Zeus comes in and and, and arranges a compromise. Persephone gets to come back for part of the year. And when does she come back? For spring. For spring, y'all. She goes to the underworld and then returns when it's spring. How freaking perfect is that? The underworld meaning, meaning south of her home. And then just as spring is coming, she gets to return home to Winterfell, maybe? That sounds perfect. And the symbolism is awesome and very, very promising for Sansa. Sansa fans, this is, this is a great moment for looking at her future with positivity and, and expectations because she does not accept. She says, she's like, I don't want that pomegranate. <laughs> she grabs a pear instead. She turns down the pomegranate. Yay, Sansa. The pear is, is also very symbolic. Pears also, you could look up pear symbolism and you'll find just so, so much. But it's almost universally positive. It's almost universally seen some ways of a symbol of fertility or feminism or youthfulness or... Uh, vibrance, radiance, and this, the pear she particularly takes a bite of is so juicy it runs down her chin. So it's a good pear. So that adds to the symbolism, meaning this is a particularly strong 
a dose of pear symbolism. This is a good pear, juicy pear. Yeah. So, of course, there's also some grapes going on in the, the fermented kind. It sounds like she's drinking Arbor Gold. It's not stated, but it sounds like it because he says it's from the Arbor and it's really fruity. And this is typically how Arbor Gold is described. So it's interesting, too, that we've, we've traced this pattern, something the fandom has done for a while, looking at examples of Arbor Gold and how that's, there's a sign of lies or manipulation. Well, as we said, Littlefinger is telling the truth about almost everything he says in the scene, but he's being extremely manipulative. So I think that still counts for the Arbor Gold pattern. Joe Buckley thinks George goes out of his way to make a point of Lysa eating while she talks. It puts us in the mind of a glutton and as a woman who's had access to food all throughout this saga, while we've been all over the country seeing starvation and lacking of supplies and just... It gives you the sense that other people are suffering and she's not helping and she's just kind of hiding away from it, which has been a complaint about the, the veil the whole time. And to be fair, it's her and not m- many of the other lords in the veil are very against her position here, especially Bronzeon Royce, who gets mentioned specifically. He is openly calling for war and she's not happy with her suitors anymore. A lot of the men she names that she's unhappy with are people who she was happy to have, you know, flattering her and trying to win her hand. So it seems like they've kind of turned on her a bit or perhaps she turned on them or maybe a little of both. A rare example of songs being right. <laughs> Sansa's constantly told, don't believe what you hear in the songs. Don't believe what you hear in the songs. The songs are just, they're exaggerations, they're lies. Well, she heard that the veil was beautiful in songs. And that one's accurate. There's one, at least. Lysa's emotions are so chaotic. She swings from just so happy to, to, she feels kinship with Sansa to grabbing her arm and threatening her and seeing her as an enemy. It's just so back and forth. So is our feelings for her, if I'm being frank. I mean, there's a lot to hate about her and a lot to feel sympathetic about her as far as how she was treated by her family and how this makes her, and how this has turned her out. She is very much a product of nurture gone wrong, if we're talking about nature versus nurture. And you can see how this whole getting thing, having what she wants, and being so demanding about the timing of her wedding, and stamping her feet and getting loud about it, it's kind of funny, but it shows where her son gets it from. I mean, Robert Aaron is behaving like a miniature Lysa Aaron. It's pretty straightforward, honestly. The betting ceremony is both funny and extremely awkward, but I noticed something that's kind of tragic about it, which is that she's so loud and happy and he's worked his magic on her so effectively. And this loudness is sad, so sad to me because when he kills her, when he shoves her out the window or out the moon door, it's total silence. She does not make a sound. That is very striking, and it fits really well with this whole back and forth of Lysa's emotions and how we feel about her. One of the things we feel for her on is the issue of her marriages. I mean, she talks about John Aaron and how old he was, and, you know, you don't want to be ageist, but, like, being a 20-something-year-old girl forced to marry a 70-year-old, that's that's too old. I mean, come on. That's, that's just common sense here. And... She didn't like how he had bad breath and Littlefinger has nice breath, which we, we have heard that before. He does like to chew mint. And so these are just little things that matter to her because, and, and maybe that's, you know, we can't tell her she's wrong. 
we just have to sit back and say, damn, <laughs> there's just nothing. There's no fixing this situation. It's just going to end the way it ends. And she makes this ominous, this ominous line here, this point. She says, a, a man will tell you poison is dishonorable, but a woman's honor is different. And of course, she hasn't yet revealed that she killed her husband herself, but that is a bit of foreshadowing for that reveal, as well as a nod to the poisoning of Joffrey, which of course is explained in this chapter. And I think to some future poisonings that we could see going on. Yeah, we're not done with poisonings, no. are we? <laughs> there will be more poisonings. I and of course, believe. we got Danny being attacked. Yeah, poison. That's true. In fact, Danny does. They do try to poison Danny, and it's uh, not from men who will tell you poison is, dishonor- is dishonorable because that's not a, a belief held in Essos. They do not think that poison is a woman's weapon over there. So here's a quote. Lord Peter was being so kind, she did not want to spoil it all by retching on him. He was studying her over his own goblet, his bright gray-green eyes full of, was it amusement or something else? Sansa was not certain. Yeah, it was a little bit of amusement, but more predation probably. (laughs) He's just thinking of how it's all falling into place. He's definitely, he would be steepling his fingers if that wasn't too obvious. Twirling that mustache, which he does have a little mustache to twirl. And this quote still at the beginning of the scene, before they've really gotten going, he's being kind, but it's completely false. But this is kind of where it's all starting. You, you, you get put in the hands of a master schemer like Littlefinger, and he's trying to teach you how his schemes work. I mean, she's picking things up and, and he's helping. We've got, we get some nice symbolism here, some parallels to the Hound and her relationship with him. She thinks of him distinctly, so it's not super subtle. There's a little old dog there that she thinks about or she pets and befriends. And it's interesting too, because this dog growls at Marillion. And it's interesting that he would do that. Like he senses Marillion's ill intent, but a, a few people wondered if there might be a little bit of just a vague skin changer hint going on here that Sansa's latent untapped abilities are barely, the dog is barely sensitive to that. I mean, dogs are the most sensitive animal to skin changing because it's a little odd that the dog would growl at Marillion just after Sansa meets the dog. And, and but, but dogs can sense Yeah, in intent. real dogs life. Dogs can scent fear and things like that. Yeah, in real life, a dog could do that. So I, I think it's probably that, but I like entertaining and considering what little seeds of skin changer dumb may still exist in Sansa's mind or body or however that works. Soul, I don't know. <laughs> but there's also, Merlion also kind of steps up and foreshadows his own doom. And while Lothar, Brune, kind of gives off even more hound vibes. He's not really a knight. He's kind of not well-dressed. He's not what she thinks of as the chivalrous image of a perfect knight, but he defends her. However, this is also a bit of um, misleading. She's not quite sure what his deal is, and she's right to not be sure because, yeah, it was a good, you know, it's good that he stepped up and slashed Marillion on the arm to get him from assaulting Sansa. But he's doing it because Littlefinger ordered him to and is paying him to do. It's not, you know, compassion or just some random good deed. And she imagines it's Sans- Sandor. Like she hear, she kind of imagines his voice and is like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, oh, Lothor Brune, of course, that's who it is. But it, 
reminder, she's still thinking about him. We, we see the old shield. Above the hearth hung a broken longsword and a battered oaken shield. It's paint cracked and flaking. Nice one-liner there. And so we were wondering a little bit off page here, me and Nina wondering what, when great-grandfather Baelish came over in the service of the Corbrays is what it said. And maybe it was the peak uprising of 233 or the fourth Blackfire Rebellion, 236. You wonder what service he was brought over for. And those are two really good possibilities. It's a wide range of options when great-granddad Baelish got knighted because as a sellsword coming over, he may have still been youngish or he may have been older and gotten his knighthood late in life. So it's really hard to figure out when it happened, but it's fun to think about. And Joe Buckley likewise wonders whether this actual shield was used against the Nine Penny Kings, if this shield saw the stepstones. Perhaps this battered shield defended Hoster Tully. After all, Hoster Tully became friends with Peter's dad based on what happened during the Nine Penny Kings War, during the war on the Stepstones. There was some sort of bonding and maybe a life was saved. That shield might have been the one that did it. So... It's pretty cool. And that would be so very telling because it's this good deed by his granddad protecting someone because he was paid. Kind of like Lothar Brune. It wasn't a good deed in the sense that it was done out of compassion. Hey, they were on the same side in a war. You, you fight for the people who are on your side. But he was a sellsword fighting for coin. So that was his true motivation for being there. He was probably looking for a way up in the world. Defending some great lord wasn't an act of kindness. It was a, hey, this is an opportunity. You know, it might be both. And well, and now here we are. All that Tully Baelish connection so long ago led us to this point. But he is not happy with his heritage. He mocks it. He kind of hates it. He doesn't think it's good enough for him. He doesn't like the fingers. He doesn't like this land. He's trying to not just rise above where he came from, he's trying to kind of erase it. He's trying to remake his own history. And he prefer, he talks about changing his sigil. And usually when people change sigils, it's a mi minor change or like you change a color, you add your mother's sigil and you do a quartering. So there's kind of some of both or you, you do four sigil, a quartering would be four sigils, but you do half and half. Usually it's variations off of an existing theme, but going from the Titan to a mockingbird, there is just, there's nothing in common there. <laughs> More symmetry, if we just look just ahead a little bit, things that are being groundwork-wise are being laid here. Sansa's supposed to be the daughter of a Bravosi woman orphaned in Westeros. When Arya goes to serve with Brusco, she's supposed to be a Westerosi orphaned in Bravos. And of course, we, can't, we would be remiss to not point out the half-and-half half nature of their nicknames. Catelyn, Arya, his, her nickname during this time with Briscoe is Cat, Cat of the Canals, and Sansa becomes Elaine, Cat Elaine, Catalan. Yeah, there you go. Littlefinger points out that it's considered rude to pry into the origins of a man's natural children, which helps explain why Jon Snow's origins aren't such a mystery after all. I mean, there's plenty of reasons why Jon Snow's origins are a mystery, but some people have wondered why it's not discussed more. But this adds a, a social layer to it, showing that it's rude to ask about that. So that's, it's not something that's just going to come up very often. And Ned, of course, was highly protective of it on top of it being considered rude. There's that. A lot of people wonder about Sweet Robin and whether there's a chance he's Littlefinger's child. I think no. I'm, I'm pretty strongly no on that. I know that it fits in a lot of ways, and at least 
if you don't dig too deeply, it fits really well because they definitely slept together before. And Littlefinger was working under John Aaron all this time. So they had proximity. However, the way the words are stated here, uh, actually, let me, I'll read Nina's take on this because it's pretty concise and it very much lines up with my own thinking. Lysa made clear to Catelyn back in the Game of Thrones that she believed John was referring to Robert as his seed when saying the seed is strong and repeats that to Sansa here. Lysa's also going to tell Littlefinger in the next chapter that she would have given him a son, but for the forced abortion, which suggests she doesn't see Robert as Littlefinger's son. She also doesn't mention sleeping with Littlefinger or him fathering Robert in her list of confessions before he kills her. There's a lot of, there's a lot, she's had a lot of opportunity to bring that up and never does. She doesn't suspect it. She doesn't mention it. And she would want it because she is, I mean, she's prone to fancy. She's prone to wanting things that are kind of impossible. She's prone to, her mind isn't super strong. So it's, it's definitely an argument against him being the father that it never comes up. Lysa also tells Sansa that it was hard to see him every day and still be wed to that old cold man, which suggests she wasn't sleeping with him. Also, Littlefinger, he delays it here. He doesn't want to have the marriage here. He wants to do it in front of people. He wants it to be a big public event. Given how badly, how badly she finally has wanted this, you could see him using it as a resource. Like by not sleeping with her, he makes the absence grow fonder, that kind of thing. A little more on how he is super arrogant, how he just talks so much. This is, again, evidence for his eventual downfall. He just seems to have this, he doesn't have a need to be the, the biggest fighter. He doesn't have to get all the girls, but he has to have people know that he's smart. He has to show off. He wants people to know he's smart. It's part of why he tells so many jokes. He, part of why he, especially when jokes aren't appropriate, he makes, he cracks jokes at inappropriate times when things are serious, a reminder that he's smart. He's, clever jokes are clever jokes, right? That's kind of uh, the shtick here. He shows that off, explaining to Sansa how he arranged everything about the poisoning of Joffrey. He knows how the Tyrells are going to behave. He doesn't, yeah, he's just not concealing any of this. He decides to trust Sansa, even though, even while telling people, telling her that secrets are important and you need to have clean hands. He's making his hands quite dirty by telling Sansa all this stuff. But Sansa and Catelyn, that's his weakness. That is where he uh, makes his most mistakes. Jaded Redhead points out that pomegranate was Catherine of Aragon's symbol. And Nina responds saying, that's fitting for a, a chapter featuring Lysa's at minimum five miscarriages and stillbirths because she lost at least five children. So that is two different people catching that. Sounds like it's probably what George had in mind. Minch Forever says, how do you parse, let's make a new baby, Peter? Does she mean the one miscarried or the sickly one or both? The miscarried one. Yeah, because she says if it wasn't for the forced abortion, they would have had a kid already, which is evidence they don't have one now because she sounds like we don't have one. We almost had one, but we don't. So let's make one. So I I'm, I'm not completely opposed to him being the father, but I do think the evidence is against it. But it's not one you can just slam dunk, say, no, definitely not. After all, we are kind of relying on Lysa's words here for a lot of it. And we're also saying Lysa's words aren't super trustworthy. So we can only go so far with that. Tubbs1971 says, I had an old theory that Hoster Tully has the, has the sex with Peter's mom. This is why he fostered a smaller house son. It was his son. Also why he was so mad that Littlefinger had sex with Lysa. Huh. Well, there's not anything specifically I can think of that speaks against that theory. I... You know, maybe she was 
on campaign. I don't know when this would have happened, but I guess it's possible. Kind of a cool idea. I, I don't have to maybe maybe requires a little more uh, pondering. Matt Reese says, could great grandpa Baelish have been a first, second, third slash sword like Sirio was and later became a cell sword after? That's entirely possible. After all, Sirio was no longer first sword. When he came to teach Arya, he had been, he retired, presumably because the Sea Lord changes out every once in a while and the new Sea Lord may have just wanted his own guy rather than going with Sirio. One reason to doubt that perhaps is that if Littlefinger's great-grandfather was that great of a warrior, he might have mentioned that. He might not have. It's entirely, I mean, he had to be a pretty good fighter to be a sellsword worth hiring and bringing over and, and, and surviving the, and procreating afterwards. So yeah, that's what they say, right? No, there's bold sellswords. There's old sellswords. There's no old, bold sellswords. So he made it to old, so he must not have been bold. <laughs> His great-grandson is, however, <laughs> but not in battle. A lot of people also wonder, how does Littlefinger know the story about Taisha? He tells this story about Tyrion and Taisha, and how does he know about that? Well, I think a lot of people would know this story. It was a decade or so ago, but still, it wasn't, there was a whole barracks of guards that, that witnessed this, plus some of the, plus officers and, and a few other of the Lannisters would know about it. I don't think it was super under wraps. I mean, little uh, Tywin's not going to go around telling the story, and certainly Tyrion isn't but those men would. Those barracks guards would be telling that story their whole life. And Littlefinger was specifically looking for dirt on Tyrion. I mean, he's, a, he's an intriguer. He's a spy type and he wanted to get back at Tyrion. He's been mad at Tyrion ever since Tyrion lied to him about the whole Harrenhal and who's going to marry, uh, marriage arrangements with Dorne and, and the Vale and all that. So, hmm, yes. He does make a peculiar comment, one that puts us in mind of show Marjorie, meaning the opposite of show Marjorie, though, because he says she'll have her maidenhood and the crown, neither of which she particularly wants. So this is an, the reason I bring the show up is because show Marjorie is like, I want to be the queen. And Littlefinger is suggesting here that, Mar that book Marjorie isn't all that interested in being queen. So we don't, we'll have to keep an eye out for that. Marjorie may not be quite as ambitious or a lot less ambitious than her show counterpart, as well as being different in age and some other things. So keep that in mind going forward. Don't let the show's version of Marjorie color your opinions here. Justin DL97 says, Barristan is no sellsword, but one cannot say he is not both old and bold. <laughs> That's true. There are maybe some old, bold Kingsguard, at least the one. <laughs> Stefan B mentions the jokish comment Littlefinger makes, calling it the Drear Fort. And that conjures up a question. Like, why is, why is he even talking about the Boltons? What's the deal? What's the connection between Littlefinger and Bolton here? Why is he mentioning them? Well, the connection, sadly, is fake Arya, a.k.a. Jane Poole, who we're going to see in a few chapters. In fact, Bolton and Littlefinger have arranged for this fake Arya. And Jamie even says, oh, he knows it's not the real Arya. It doesn't matter. It'll work for his purposes. So that was part of the arrangement, I guess, Littlefinger. I don't know how this came about, this, this arrangement. And what's interesting about it, too, is that Jane Poole's been in King's Landing this whole time. Someone else has been training her, obviously, because Littlefinger hasn't been in King's Landing for quite a long time. The chapter ends with it all starting again. Joffrey and Cersei. Now it's Robert and Lysa. Even when dealing with family... It's all about her claim. That's what I meant at the beginning when I said the more things change, the more they stay the same. Sansa escapes King's Landing. 
And she finds herself in a place where people are still trying to get in her bed, get her claim, and marry her off to someone she has no interest in. And that's exactly what was happening at King's Landing. I'll close this chapter out with a great line, a great take from Kelly Lowe on Facebook. She, she responds to our chapter title saying a wedding where no one dies by saying, but give it time. Because, well, yeah, Lysa does get killed not so long from now. Peter and Lysa's relationship is so sad. On one hand, Lysa is a hugely dislikable character, but like it can happen in real life, many of her dislikable features are a direct result from her traumas. So it's hard not to feel bad for her as she literally climbs into bed with the person who only cares about her as far as he can manipulate her power. Now, of course, he's manipulating her, but she thinks he cares about her and he's the only one. And so that's a problem. And he, of, of course, Littlefinger has almost certainly been reinforced this belief as he's done it with Sansa saying, I'm the only one who could protect you. Continuing Kelly's quote here. I imagine after his termination of Lysa's very much wanted pregnancy, she found comfort in Littlefinger, who was able to further sink his claws into her by isolating her from her family that had, in all fairness, genuinely mistreated her. Peter certainly fed into her hatred of her father and took the chance to comfort her in her pain so that she would depend on him emotionally. Hoster played no small part in creating the monsters that helped bring the War of Five Kings into fruition. Very, very well said, Kelly. Good job. A lot of people liked that comment in our chapter thread for that one. One of the more liked comments in Valerie Reedus history, in fact. All right, that was a long one as we knew it would be. Let's go on to John 9. The gang fights a turtle, aka the one where Janos Slint arrests John. It's also the one with breakfast arrows. You've got to start your day with breakfast arrows, or you're not doing it right. It's interesting to start this chapter immediately after Sansa's, because Sansa's chapter ends with Lysa proclaiming that she kept the veil out of the war, and at the ear, he's impregnable. Now we have Sansa's brother, well, sort of brother, whatever, <laughs> defending also a supposedly impregnable high wall from an oncoming enemy. Hmm. The opening line is, Day and night, the axes rang. John was exhausted last chapter and it's gotten worse. They aren't surrounded or cut off, but they can't leave their posts either. So it's kind of similar to a siege. They're kind of trapped. There isn't a lot of immediate danger, but if they don't do their jobs, that would cease to be true quickly. There would become immediate danger. And of course, we learn later that Mance is holding back. There could be a lot more immediate danger, but he has plans. It isn't just physical exhaustion either. It's emotional. One unlucky brother actually did get shot by an arrow, caught by the wind, fell off the wall to his death. And he was a steward, not meant to be in battle in the first place, though everyone capable at all of fighting is doing so now. And that's the problem. There aren't enough of them to do the jobs that need doing. I appreciate Pip cracking jokes. He's counting the arrows that strike the straw sentinels. He's keeping it light. He's almost like the opposite of Dollar's Head, who we don't see in this chapter. There's this chapter sad enough without him, I suppose. We could call Pip Positive Pip here. Dollar's Head, Positive Pip. They make a team. When he goes to treat with Mance next chapter, it's clear that the wall has only held, like I said, because Mance wants to shelter behind the wall himself, not break it. And when he describes the ways he could have broken it, it doesn't sound like he's lying. It sounds like, yeah, that probably would have worked. <laughs> this delay, of course, cost Mance almost everything. He doesn't have O and the O for any other prophetic help. <laughs> so yeah. speaking of O and the O, some astute commenters have noticed that O and the O's dream of Robert and his golden banners is a prophecy of Stannis coming with his golden banners and that it's happened twice. Yeah. It has, twice. Owen the Oaf has this dream multiple times in John's last chapter and this chapter. 
So, yeah. hmm, Owen the Oaf, making sure we hear that dream. Pretty ominous, though. Oh, but Owen the Oaf, at least for now, we have positive things to say about him. He survives all this. He dances with Patchface later. That's kind of ominous. Two people with slowed minds that have prophetic dreams. Yeah, more on that later. <laughs> that's, that's something to file on the what? But Owen, on the lighter side, Owen gets Janice Lent's boots when John executes him. He's like, can I have those boots? I'm like, it's a nice boots. Shouldn't be thrown away, right? Well, here's a description of just how close Mance was to wearing them down without breaking the wall. Their oil was all but gone, and the last barrel of pitch had been rolled off the wall two nights ago. They would soon run short of arrows as well, and there were no Fletchers making more. Will we see lines like this when the real long night comes, when armies or POVs or both are trapped in still at the wall or at Winterfell or somewhere else? Can't imagine supplies will be plentiful. Can't imagine food will be plentiful. It'll be... This is, this is preparing us for, for much worse, I think. The, much is made of banners. Banners are such a huge deal. In fact, when the army is approaching, Varamir sees the banners through Orel the Eagle and says, makes a similar line. He's like, oh, the golden banners, the golden banners. And then, of course, he bursts into flames himself. So <laughs> he kind of becomes part of the sigil in a sense. The flames reach him almost. And it's pretty cool. Lots of interesting symbolism going on here. There's also important and subtle groundwork about the characters on the wall. Of course, Bowen Marsh is going to have a much larger role in A Dance with Dragons, and there's some character work for him here. Bowen Marsh had chased the wildlings all the way to the Shadow Tower, it seemed, and then farther, down into the gloom of the gorge. At the Bridge of Skulls, he had met the Weeper and 300 wildlings and won a bloody battle. But... Mm. The victory had been a costly one. Mm, yeah. A victory is good, obviously, but as Mance tells John later, that was just part of his strategy to draw strength away from Castle Black, showing that it worked. He said, Bowen Marsh will take this bait, and he did. Now, of course, maybe he's just saying that after the fact, but it makes sense. It does fit in with a pretty standard strategy. Draw, use your numbers to make them expand their numbers and... and be very thin. And that's exactly what happens. But look at Bowen's point of view. That's what I think is more important here. This battle almost certainly has a huge influence on Bowen's anti-wildling stance. He's the leader of the people that stab John. And it's right after John lets the wildlings through the wall and declares he's going to get involved with this business with Ramsey Bolton after the pink letter. So keep in mind here that Bowen lost a lot of friends over the years, probably. He's an older guy. He's seen, he's probably lost friends to the Wildings before. But in this particular engagement, which was said to be really nasty, Andrew Tarth is killed. Aladale Winch, several other men. These are Highborn Night's Watch officers. These are people that Bowen Marsh probably knew. He'd probably known a lot of them for quite a while. He himself got a nasty injury. Yeah, so this is just, to me, it sounds like Bowen's anger towards John, his perceiving John's actions as treasonous towards the Night's Watch oaths is also a bit personal to him. And you kind of see where he's coming from. You, you, you wouldn't stab John, <laughs> but you see why he's mad about it. Maybe you would stab John. I won't speak for you. <laughs> 
So let's get to the very, very frustrating part of this chapter. And it's a, another sign of how good George is as a writer because so many of y'all, self-included, so so many of us are just palpably angry at Jano Slint here and Alistair Thorne. It's so, it's so well-written how much we hate this guy. He's one of the worst characters, <laughs> but not worst like worst written. Just, you really hate this guy. It's such a well-crafted Ugh. people come, I mean, comments on Facebook and Flick and everywhere were just like, God, I hate this guy. Their people were not, their usual analytic tone was slipping a bit as they let their hate for Jano Slint come forth. And I'm here for it because <laughs> this is a guy who is very worth hating. There's a small bit of, of humor here too that I did not catch this. This is really funny. Jano Slint insists on being referred to as Malord which is, as we learned from Roose Bolton, lowborn people say my lord, highborn say my lord, and John refuses to, to say my lord. He says, my lord. So he, it's like Slint is saying, you should address me the way a commoner would address me because you're a commoner. You're, you're a lowborn bastard. No, I'm Ned Stark's son. I'll say my lord. If you need, your, if you need a little anger, if you, if you didn't have enough coffee, there's nothing like, Hearing Jano's slint talk to make you a little more angry and fired up. Sir, snapped the jowly man. You will address Sir Alliser and myself as my lord. I am Jano Slint, Lord of Harrenhal, and commander here at Castle Black until such time as Bowen Marsh returns with his garrison. Uh, so here he is like, trying to enforce the Night's Watch rules, right? But calling himself Lord of Harrenhal, that's, don't you recall, Janos, that when you take the black, you cease to be Lord of Harrenhal? And let's not forget, you never actually set foot there either. You never saw Harrenhal. So, boy, is he a blowhard. <laughs> so even Joe Buckley, a calm, demeanored fellow, you would say. If you've listened to him speak at all, he is a very gentle person. He is not a man who gets loud or complains or has vicious takes. But here he says, they aren't just enemies. They are annoying enemies. They have essentially no positives about them. No aspects we can respect, nor any dimensions that make us understand them better. There's no great motivation to be how they are. They are horrible just for horribleness's sake. And now we've learned they've teamed up. <laughs> See, check out Joe's podcast. That's a great, great take. Also. Joe points out, show Alistair Thorne does have some character depth. There is some things you can respect about him, and the acting is fantastic from Owen Teal. So, but he's also just more prominent. It's the law of conservation of characters. Alistair Thorne is, is definitely more tertiary in the books because there's just so many more characters. And uh, yeah, so fair point, fair point. Now, it could change. Alistair Thorne maybe gets some added dimension to him. I wouldn't count on that, though. <laughs> I would not at all. We haven't seen either of these characters in a while. The last time we saw Thorn was Tyrion 6, A Clash of Kings. And the last time we saw Slint was Tyrion 2, A Clash of Kings. Funny enough how they, these are very much attached to Tyrion. But of course, Thorn actually went to King's Landing and Tyrion was acting hand then. Rattleshirt here too. Like all these people that really have a grudge against Jon just happened to all be in the same room just saying their things and, and bringing Jon down a bit. Slint and Thorn curse out Noi, which is like 
talk about clever ways to make us hate Slint and Thorne even more. I mean, Donald Noy, you're bad-mouthing Donald Noy? Come on. I mean, geez. Yeah. Just when you think there's not another way they could sink lower, they do that. I mean, wow. So that's the kind of tangible frustration we get from our our commenters, from our co-writers, from everything. (laughs) And there's one more point here. Tree Girl, who was at the Vanguard complaining effectively and accurately about Slint and Thorn. She mentioned Septon Celador as another uh, compatriot here, another toady who in giving evidence for John's possible treason, he says that John didn't do his vows properly. He had the meth, he went did the werewood, blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, come on. And of course, after all that, after all that, we, we, I would be remiss to not point out that who comes to speak well of John, who defends him? Maester Eamon, the man himself. So at least someone's on John's side here. In addition to all the tangible frustration and injustice and some of the good moments, there's some really evocative images in this one. The, the ominous advance of the turtle past all these different bodies, carrion birds, the barrels. I mean, damn, those, those 700 foot dropped barrel full of gravel and ice. I mean, that is heavy as hell. Crushing it like it does with that smashing sound. The Miris telescope that John is using, that's pretty cool, right? He's looking at Mance's huge tent made entirely from snow bear pelts, which that sounds kind of cool. He sees Val milking a goat. He sees Tormund eating a goat. <laughs> he sees Vermeer with his animals and so many other people he doesn't know by, by sight, doesn't recognize, but there's mammoths and giants. Archmaster Rennie wonders about how the free folk are just leaving those bodies there unburned. Maybe that's because the others haven't come this far south yet. But we did see whites near the Weirwood where those vows were said, although those may have been kind of special mission whites. <laughs> we're not really sure. They, were, they, were, they certainly didn't come in force. It's still an interesting curiosity, though. Maybe they're just because they're between the bodies and the wall, or maybe the, the, the magic of the wall would keep them from rising so close to it. But I don't think so, because once again, Athor and Jafer Flowers rose inside uh, Castle Black on the other side of the wall. Stephanie, the peerless says there's a whole actual horn that wakes the sleepers in this one, <laughs> meaning they just, you know, they're woken up by the horn. <laughs> All right. That chapter was much quicker. Battle chapters often are. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Tyrion 10, making Tyrion Lannister a murderer, a.k.a. the one with the mountain versus the viper. Got my red viper shirt on today, sun and spear. We begin with a pretty dead-on reference to the chapter we just finished. 
John spoke about the facing of food. He finished off his chapter by standing, getting dragged off, condemned. To keep the vibe going, Tyrion considers what life might be like on the wall. And then the first line of the chapter is... When dawn broke, he found he could not face the thought of food. Remember, of course, that the chapter ends with him throwing up. So this is kind of comes full circle. Here at the start, it's all about the trial. First the trial, then the trial by battle. No sooner had Tyrion taken his place before the judges than another group of gold cloaks led in Shay. A cold hand tightened round his heart. Varys betrayed her, he thought. Then he remembered. No, I betrayed her myself. I should have left her with lollies. Of course, they'd question Sansa's maids. I'd do the same. Tyrion rubbed the slick scar where his nose had been, wondering why Cersei had bothered. Shay knows nothing that can hurt me. Yeah, well, but she can lie, and she can be coerced into lying. The trial is so very painful. You know, <clears throat> Tyrion does have some thoughts of his, him thinking that he betrayed her. He's right. Of course, he probably needs to think that through a little more because he's betrayed her in a few other ways as well, but we've been over that before. In general, though, this is a point I was making in his last chapter. It's just Tyrion being less clever. His trauma and his attitude and his drinking and his unhappiness, his depression, those are not things that help you be clever. In fact, they're quite the opposite. They, are, they hurt your cleverness. Notice how Littlefinger is maintaining his cleverness and none, he's not afflicted by any of these problems. And because Tyrion thinks, yeah, of course I should have left her with lollies. Of course they'd question Sansa's maids. That's, that is pretty obvious, right? And before we talk about how he really could have noticed the angle. Clash of Kings Tyrion would probably have noticed the angle. Oh, the Red Viper wants to kill the mountain. The Red Viper wants to kill Tywin. Oh, yeah. Like, this is not a big secret. <laughs> Yet Tyrion doesn't notice these things. So yeah, same thinking. He realizes how he missed these things. He's realizing how he missed things with Shay and with Cersei. And his this thought here, he's like, why did Cersei bother? She doesn't, Shay doesn't know anything that can hurt me. This is so unclever of Tyrion. Obviously, she's going to lie. Obviously, Cersei and maybe Tywin have pushed this on her, have said, hey, I want you to tell this. I want you to say that. If you don't, painful suffering. And if not, well, some bribery. You know, it's the same plateau o plomo, silver or lead, gold or steel for this setting. I mean, she does end up in Tywin's bed, so there's pretty strong evidence that there was some uh, favors offered in one direction or both. So if she told the whole story, if Shay just spilled every detail she could, and I wouldn't blame her for doing so, she's probably terrified, and Cersei's threatening her is, that's no idle threat. So this, that's where maybe the my giant part comes from. Cersei probably realized that that was really going to hurt Tyrion personally to embarrass him. And so that's why when Shay says that line, some readers have this visceral reaction of, man, she's really betraying him. But really, you got to put yourself in her shoes. She's being forced into all this, almost certainly. And I bet Cersei's behind that line. I bet Cersei made her say that. We know Cersei and Tyrion love to insult each other, and Cersei's smart enough to realize that this would insult him badly. And it works. People, as we'll see in a minute, they're going to laugh their asses off at him, and it's going to make him so angry and shamed. And the lies, even though they are lies, are highly damning. I mean, he thinks of, 
he, he has this awful moment where he thinks of Taisha indirectly when he thinks, oh, Shay, they're not going to give you the reward. They probably promise you some reward, but they're just going to give you to the barracks when they're done with you. Ooh, yeah. And that just makes it hit harder for him when he finds her in Tywin's bed instead because it's the same yet the opposite. Shay's anecdote about Tyrion stealing her from uh, a husband-to-be is probably made up. That's, but it might be partly possible. I mean, Bronn told Tyrion he took her from a knight, and one can see why she would have kept that a secret. I mean, she wouldn't be like, oh, you stole me from, she wouldn't tell Tyrion that. <laughs> She's trying to get in his good graces to make him feel good. She's trying to do what a sex worker does, fulfill his fantasy, which does not involve telling him about her past relationships and who she stole him from, who she was stolen from, right? So she's telling, saying what she needs to say. But she is lying or about putting this knight in the front ranks of the vanguard to get him killed. And this is where we can get mad at Tywin's hypocrisy again. Recall last chapter, he jumps in to correct the Kingsguard in the matter of Tyrion being acting hand. He wasn't hand, he was acting hand. Tywin being so correct and proper, making sure all the titles are just right. Yet Tywin notably did not give command to Tyrion at the Battle of the Green Fork. He could not have been telling anyone to fight in the vanguard. Tyrion himself was put in the vanguard <laughs> by Tywin, probably to get him killed, or at least hopefully to get him killed. And Tywin knows all this. He knows the commander of the vanguard was the mountain, whom he gave the command to. So he could have jumped in and said, oh, that's not true. He couldn't have done that. <laughs> but he's only jumping in to correct things that make Tyrion look bad. He would never jump in to correct something that makes Tyrion look better. No, of course not. Why would Tywin, his father, do that? This is a reminder, of course, that when bringing up the Green Fork battle is a reminder to Tyrion that his father tried to get him killed by putting him in the vanguard in a place where he expected the vanguard would collapse. Remember, Tywin was planning for the vanguard to fail so that Rob's army would rush into the gap and then he could close, do a pincer maneuver and, and push them against the river. So it was all part of the plan. Tyrion's part of the battle was supposed to fail. So this is bringing that memory back too amidst all this, amidst his perception. Like we've been clear, Tyrion, uh, Shay has good reason to say what she's saying. She has little choice here. But that doesn't mean Tyrion doesn't also have good reason to be feeling very betrayed and horrified at all this. And so it piles on when people mention other things that his father betrayed him on that aren't directly related to this trial at all, but serve to add to his fury. And then they laugh at him. Oh man, they laugh at him nastily. Everyone in the room except Tywin. Tywin's the second most embarrassed person in the room for that, but it's a distant second. But he is embarrassed because all, he, just, he hates all of this. He wants it to be over with. This is a thorough and crushing reminder of how Tyrion is perceived, this laughter. If you focus on his perspective and how much hate must be brewing in him right now, you get it, I think. Maybe you can't, you can't feel it because it's a kind of, this is beyond what's possible in the real world. But it tells us a lot about how he could be driven so far that he would kill his father, that he would flee to Essos, that he would return to seek revenge. You could see the motivation. You could see where this hate is birthed or where it rises to a new level, where it is seared into semi-permanence. Last Tyrion chapter, I brought up how this is an innocent until guilty situation. And there's another point along those lines here. Tyrion gets up and tells them he's guilty only of being a dwarf, and then he says this. He turned to face the hall 
that sea of pale faces. I wish I had enough poison for you all. You make me sorry that I am not the monster you would have me be. Yet there it is. I am innocent, but I will get no justice here. You leave me no choice but to appeal to the gods. I demand trial by battle. We have also come, in, in addition to innocent until proven guilty, to expect a jury of our peers. But who is a peer for Tyrion? I can't name one. He's so very unique. Some of the things that make him unique are reasons why he doesn't really have peers. This is not a society particularly adept or even willing to consider perspective either. There's not a lot of people saying, gosh, I wonder what Tyrion's feeling right now. There's not a lot of empathy to go around, especially in a place like this. Tyrion is, in addition to feeling all this hate and anger and fury, he's also anxious, uh, especially by the time the trial's over and it comes to prepare for the actual trial by combat. And it's a, it's a strange thing to see Tyrion telling Prince Oberyn he doesn't think much of his strategy. <laughs> it's like, not sure I'd be planting doubts or fears in my champion's head. Oberyn is blithely confident and likely doesn't put much stock in Tyrion's opinion on fighting in the first place because Oberyn laughed at the My Giant comment too. I doubt Oberyn thinks Tyrion's much of a fighter, so probably can ignore what Tyrion says here. Now Oberyn is, of course, by his own words, a bloodthirsty man. He's fought in sellsword companies, including his own and has a lot of experience. Like Bronn, also a sellsword, they say almost the exact same things about how to kill large men. Get them off their feet, get, make them tired, move around quickly, etc. However, Bronn is no poisoner. Not that he's necessarily above it. He just lacks the skills as far as we know and, and probably the sources. Oberyn, however, rich. More importantly, he studied at the Citadel on this topic specifically, as well as others. Nor is Bronn spearfighter, which is... A crucial part of the strategy, which, as he says, is countering Gregor's reach. But of course, the biggest thing Bronn lacks that Oberyn has in spades is motivation. Oberyn can't wait for this. He's been waiting for it. He, he's literally walking quickly, like Tyrion has to struggle to keep up with him, which, again, reminds me of the tortoise and the hare, but <laughs> it's mentioned both in this chapter and his previous that Varys could be listening to this conversation. In fact, Tywin might have even specifically asked Varys to spy on Tyrion to see what the witnesses are telling him or to see how his angles or his preparation for the trial is going. Because Tywin obviously wants this to go a certain way. He wanted Tyrion to surrender, declare himself guilty, to be sent to the wall, and to be done with it. <laughs> As Tyrion says, it's quite a conversation to be overheard, though. This is way more than Tywin might have expected. Oberyn openly discusses doing what Arianne's going to try to do, which is crown Marcella. And it's a bit curious, because Doran Martell, Arianne's dad, obviously, will claim he and Oberyn worked together very closely on these plans. He's going to be against crowning Marcella when Arianne tried for it. However, things have changed since they formed their plans. Doran was maybe open to crowning Marcella under different circumstances, like, say, with Tyrion on their side and Oberyn not dead. Tyrion would have been valuable to them, not just for his advice and things he knows about his family, but because he has a claim to Casterly Rock, which Oberyn points out in this chapter. And the Viper also mentions Sansa's claim to Winterfell. So very powerful alliance that never comes to be. But it may come to be in a different form when Daenerys shows up. Speaking of, Oberyn doesn't mention it, but he must know about Quentin's trip to go visit Daenerys. So there's another person that he is perhaps imagining is going to be part of his team here. And if you lay it out like that, 
Casterly Rock with Tyrion. You got Sansa and her claim to Winterfell. You got Daenerys and her dragon and whatever else she's bringing over, married to Quentin. Of course, that's what Oberyn's expecting, that Daenerys will return married to Quentin. So... You really think Oberyn believed that? <laughs> yeah, you know, he might not have. He might, you're right. He might have been like Dario and like, she's not going to marry him. But she doesn't know anything about Danny, So she, she you know, yeah, he doesn't Dario know. does. <laughs> he, may, he may be hearing what Varys told that she's this meek girl. Because she was a meek girl for a long time until things changed. Maybe that's, maybe that's the impression Oberyn has. But that's a good point, though. Maybe, Quentin, maybe Oberyn was like, bro, this plan, you're sending him to seduce someone? I know the ladies. And they don't, that's not what the ladies want. <laughs> yeah, some people have made that joke before. Maybe they should have sent the Red Viper. <laughs> the Red oh, Viper I've himself. made that joke. I've been quite serious. Yeah, it's not a joke, is that it? I 100% think they should have, if not just sent Oberyn, they should have at the very least sent like Nymeria with Quentin. Yeah, right. Yeah, send one of send the Quentin fierce alone. women with. Yeah, yeah. He, he has to have someone who knows how to intrigue and how to interact with people in Essos and some yeah. languages. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, they had some of the people that got killed, right? They yeah, had the Nymeria is not getting killed. But Nymeria was not, it would have been better to send Nymeria. You're right, that's a great point. <laughs> so when people complain that Doran's plans aren't great, there's good reasons to feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> Doran's plans, his, his cause is just. Yeah. We want him to succeed, but some of his plans... Yeah, they lack There's that my fire box for you. Yeah, get fired up every like Quentin every time I think about this. <laughs> so you can see where Oberyn's feeling so confident, but it kind of reflects on the same overconfidence that gets him killed, I suppose. Now another point here with the possibility that Varus is listening. There's always a possibility that Varus is listening but not telling everything. He could what actually passes from Varus to Tywin is an entirely different question. And I wonder about Tywin too, like not about as far as Daenerys goes, because we've seen Varys, it's a perfect example. Varys downplays Daenerys' existence. He says, oh, a three-headed dragon has been born in Karth. And Tywin's like, I don't care about that. And that was almost certainly stated that way by Varys because he knew that calling it a rumor that way, making it sound all fanciful, is exactly the way to get Tywin to dismiss it. So I'm curious, at what point did Tywin figure out that Oberyn wanted to fight Gregor? What point did he realize that was the angle? Because Tyrion didn't catch it either until Oberyn basically puts it right in his face. He's like, hey man, champion, not judge, get it? I hate that guy. He killed my, my, sis, my nephew and my sister. Hello. Tywin might have figured it out and been like, oh, should have realized that sooner. And in fact, but he may not have realized it until the minute <laughs> Oberyn stands up and says, I am quite convinced. Just like Tyrion didn't figure it out till Oberyn told him, maybe it was for Tywin. Now recall Tywin is utterly frustrated when the trial breaks down the way it does. So all the other reasons Tywin is frustrated there, there's a lot. So it doesn't have to be this because there's so many frustrating things. If he didn't notice this angle, though, he might feel like, damn, I should have noticed that. But he offers all these things to Oberyn. He tries to, marriage offers, Cersei to Oberyn, council seats, giving them land. He stacks the trial. He gives them judgment over his son, things like this. But everything falls apart. The Tyrells are unhappy about the Ch Oberyn standing as Tyrant, uh, Tyrion's champion. The, Tyr the, the plan to send Tyrion to the wall is spurned. So it's interesting because Tywin doesn't laugh when everybody else laughs, because of course he doesn't. But he, he loses his cool in this trial. He bangs his hand down and can't speak. He's like, mm, and then eventually he says, I washed my hands of it. He's so mad. And this is another thing that I'm just like, God, this guy is such a hypocrite. And look where his attitudes are. He, what, he's mad about this. This is, this is so angering to him that he bangs his fist 
on the table, which is for him a big deal because he rarely makes displays like that. But when Joffrey is killed and his daughter is crying and holding her his body, he's like, unhand her, Cersei. <laughs> I mean, this is, that didn't get a reaction out of him, an emotional reaction out of him, but this, because it's about him. It's his plans going awry. Whereas, well, Joffrey's death isn't his fault. That's that his, the Lannisters are still king, you know? Jeez. Mm, it's funny, too, that Tyrion is still thinking of, of being a master coin. He's still kind of doing his job a little bit while he's on trial and thinking, wow, look at all these people. We should have charged entry to watch this. <laughs> it's like he's still got his mind on fixing the huge financial issues at King's Landing, which, hey, can't blame him. It's a, the, his focus for so long, which is part of why he's not as interesting in this book as, as in The Clash of Kings, because for Hand of the King to Master Coin is, yeah, that's a much less interesting job. I also wonder if Tywin, in this moment, worries that Jamie will try to stand for Tyrion, because that is the kind of thing he would do, even though he knows he would lose, even though everyone knows Jamie would lose. Jamie himself knows he would lose, but hey, that's what, I mean, he jumped in the bear pit. Jamie could very well do that, and so Tywin might be worried about that as well. So it's laid on really thick, all this. It's like manticore venom on the tip of a spear. First-time readers, even first-time readers, I should say, aren't likely to think Tyrion's going to die. They might. They might. Oh, maybe this is the end of him. He's been miserable for a whole book. He's done his thing. That's it for him. But, but there are hints that that's, it's not over him for him, right? Because Oberyn's bringing up joining his team and going to Dorne and, and all this other stuff. More details on Casterly Rock come up. As Oberyn's trying to win Tyrion over, he brings up more things his, the Lannisters have done that are not so good to Tyrion. In other words, more impetus for Tyrion to abandon his own family. This unnamed princess of Dorne was clearly no fool when it came to marriage alliances. If she was shopping around Elia and Oberyn to the Danes and the Hightowers and the Redwines and, and the Crake Halls while actually angling for a Lannister marriage. But to be fair to Tywin here, there's good reasons why Jamie for Elia was not a good match. Elia was a decade older than Jamie, which means waiting until Elia's in her mid 20s, and she's delicate. Like that was known even when she was younger. So mm, ty now Tywin's very much concerned about Jamie having an heir. He wants this line to continue. He doesn't have a son, another son at this point, and may, maybe doesn't, maybe will never have one. And of course, during this process, Joanna dies giving birth to Tyrion, which only makes this even more strict for Tywin. He really doesn't want Castle Rock to pass through Jamie now or pass over Jamie now. So he really wants Jamie to have a son after Tyrion is born because he's like, I don't want him to inherit. And over time, that just gets stronger because Tywin grows to dislike Tyrion even more as he advances from infanthood. So these are all interesting considerations. However, I don't, there's no great reason to say that Oberyn for Cersei was a bad idea back then. Though none of these same concerns exist. Oberyn for Cersei back then would have, would have been fine. The, the age difference is less of a problem when it's reversed this way because of childbearing concerns. And... The power angle is still there. So yeah, I, it's interesting to, to see how this went. But of course, also Tywin's in grief when this happens. So eh. these great lords and mar ladies marry from such shallow pools that history can in repeat itself. 
Like I said, Cersei for Oberyn made sense back then, maybe if you could squint a little. But here, it's again being offered and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It is kind of ironic that Tywin was against it then, but for it now. But it's not like, this is not an example of his hypocrisy. There's plenty of those. But this is just a matter of circumstances being different 20 years later, which is, that's reasonable. But he did also, the reason he didn't want Cersei to marry Oberyn was that he wanted her to marry Rhaegar. And also now, Cersei's son is the king, so her value to Tywin is not as a coin to marry the king, but as a coin to settle this old blood debt. And here's that really famous quote that I love from Tyrion that applies to so, so many aspects of A Song of Ice and Fire. This is a seminal one, y'all. It all goes back and back, Tyrion thought, to our mothers and fathers and theirs before them. We are puppets dancing on the strings of those who came before us. And one day, our own children will take up our strings and dance on in our steads. Yeah, it's, it's no mere coincidence that Tyrion happened to think it now. It's absolutely poignant for this moment. We know from Feast that the Sand Snakes, Doran as a whole, are now crying out for vengeance for Oberyn. So they'll make a strike in some way. Then the Lannisters will want the same. And on and on we go. It's Bracken versus Blackwood, down to a T with a less years of buildup, but more intensity and more on the line. I think that's a large part of George's story here on the thirst for revenge and how hollowing it can be, how pointless it can be, and how endless it can be. So since Oberyn has no interest in Cersei as a wife, nor will anything whatsoever stand in as a substitute for justice, as in the revenge he desires, so. Again, why is Oberyn telling Tyrion all this? Well, as I said at the beginning, a part of it is to recruit Tyrion. But another part is to restate or better explain how he views Tywin. He knows Tywin is vindictive. Why does that matter? Point being, he is certain Tywin wanted revenge for these marriage alliances going belly up on him. He is certain Tywin is mad that he didn't get Rhaegar for Cersei uh, and that Elia did, which is why he will never believe what Tyr- Tyrion tells him, which is that my father didn't give orders about Elia. He says he forgot. He just, well, Gregor did that on his own. Oberyn will never, ever believe that because vindictive Tywin would not forget about Elia and his opportunity to get her after all these years, just like Oberyn's trying to get Tywin after all these years. A guy who's been focused on revenge so long has a sense of how other people are going to think about revenge, and he's got a read on the type of person Tywin is. And he's right. Tywin is vindictive. This is The idea that Tywin forget about Elia, it's possible because he's enough of a misogynist that he might think more about the people who made the offers, and he might be mad at Doran and Doran's mother, etc. That might be where he puts his anger towards their house and not a specific individual. That's the only small point I can see that might argue Tywin didn't really care about Elia. I just doubt it so much. I mean, Reigns of Castamere, all his, his, the way he comes back on the Mad King, the way he's, yeah, there's just so many examples of Tywin being vindictive. Oberyn's just not buying it. <laughs> and I, and I, I, it doesn't even matter if it's true. Whether Tywin gave the order or not, I mean, it does matter in a sense, but it doesn't matter to Oberyn because he's not going to believe otherwise. That's what I mean. Like, you're not going to convince the Red Viper that Tywin didn't specifically order Elia's death. 
When the fight itself comes, I have such fond memories of this chapter, not just because of how incredible it is, how epic it is, but because the older audiobook version was divided into four large chunks. It was cut into quarters, and the fourth part starts with this chapter. The first chapter of the fourth part is this. It was really easy to just go right to that. It was a temptation. It was a tempting place to start, and it's a temptation I gave into many times. If you're like me, you've had that, this time he's gonna win thought pop up in your head, involuntarily show version or book version. George R. Martin says he's gotten letters from fans who were in total denial, saying things like, it should not have been possible for the mountain to pull over and down like that once he was poisoned and pinned by that spear. George has a ready response to anyone who says that. He says, that's what the Red Viper thought too. <laughs> Even with all this buildup, he has quite, he's been quite restrained during his time in King's Landing. <laughs> Oberyn, that is like, he, he comes in saying, oh, I'm going to stomp on Tyrell's, like, blah, blah, blah. He's like, I've, I've come for justice. He comes stomping in. But most of the time, he doesn't really, mostly just hangs out. And he might be doing stuff behind the scenes. He might be, you know, trying to poison Tywin. <laughs> There's some more evidence of that here. But this is truly what he's wanted. His love for Elia is palpable. And, well, we got to read this quote. You raped her. He called, fainting. You murdered her, he said, dodging a looping cut from Gregor's great sword. You killed her children, he shouted, slamming the spear point into the giant's throat, only to have it glance off the thick steel gorget with a screech. Oberyn is everyone who's ever felt like they were wronged, especially if it was justified, and is finally getting a chance. And he's also like everyone whose chance failed, who they finally got that chance for what they feel like they deserve to right an old wrong, and it doesn't happen. It's so painful, it's so visceral. When he's yelling like that, I imagine a lot of, of you, if you're at all like me, you feel, you're reminded of whatever injustices you perceive for yourself or out in the world or for your family or, or whatever it is. And he's yelling for you. He's yelling like, this is blatant. This cannot go unpunished. You cannot commit a crime like this and not be punished for it. It is so unfair. It gets you. It really just, uh, you can feel it. It's visceral. I, I, there's something about this chapter as a stand-in for all other injustices around the world. And it becomes overwhelming if you, see, if you feel it that way. I like that Oberyn's weapons in this fight are... What Daron the First, the young dragon, called the Dornishman's two favorite weapons, the sun and the spear. Of course, the spear is the main thing, but the sun is vital. The sun's glare, blinding Gregor, lifting his shield to block the sun, creating an opening for the spear. They work in concert, like uh, Doran and Oberyn did, but in a different setting. This also harkens back to the earlier in the chapter when Tyrion sees the sun struggling to get through the clouds, and he sees it as kind of a pre-fight like he's not I have no he's like I have no idea who's gonna win that fight either <laughs> and it also is a reference to Gregor putting the sun at his back when the duel starts like using his warrior instincts well the sun's gonna circle around behind him and spear him in the back of the knee despite what I said about doubting Tyrion's death there's definitely tension right like you can't deny that <laughs> it still feels tense even when you've read it for like the 50th time it's like I'm, how am I on the edge of my seat? I know exactly what's going to happen. I can almost recite every line of this. Oberyn bumping into the spectator gives Gregor a, a brief chance 
And George uses the moment with both deep subtlety and blunt brutality. He cuts the arm from a hapless boy and then finishes him off with a cut to the head. As he does this, he yells, shut up, at the poor kid, who is, of course, screaming. This is consistent with what we know about Gregor. I, I don't mean the slaughtering people at, on a whim. Obviously, he's a bloody killer, but he's also aggravated, if not physically pained, by sharp and or loud noises. This is another great aspect of George's creations, that even this blunt, brutal, two-dimensional character has some dimension to him in that this consistency of his frustration and aggravation and violent reaction towards loud sounds. There's a fitting metaphor here, given his nickname. We're all, we're all probably familiar with the old trope of an avalanche, right? Which is, you get that, a lot of TVs like Looney Tunes, where you're like, be quiet when you're walking through the mountains or an avalanche will start. I think that might've been what George was going for with that. The mountain once killed a man for snoring and smashed Pretty Pia in the face when he wanted quiet. These are perceived as evidence of his senseless violence. And yeah, it is senseless violence, but consistently his trigger is annoying sounds or what he perceives as annoying. He yells out over and makes his head hurt with his repeated yelling about Elia. Multiple times during the battle, Oberyn's spear like screeches or shrieks on Gregor's plate mail. George is very specific with his descriptive language, making it sound ominous and loud. That probably mattered. It probably helped frustrate Gregor even more. And even when he admits at the last to killing baby Aegon, he refers to the child as a screaming whelp. The sensitivity is because he has headaches, probably migraines from his gigantism, which is a very common feature of people who become, who grow uh, that large. What happens is, if I understand the science correctly, we all have a growth, we have growth hormones that are triggered when we're younger. And for people who grow to that size or similarly large, the issue is that the gland that tells the body to grow never stops. It just keeps going. And this is the same reason he's doped up on milk of the poppy all the time. We brought that up a few times. But it's again relevant here because it might help explain his resistance to the mantigore venom that the red viper put on his spear. The viper knows poisons really well but he doesn't know really large men addicted to the equivalent of heroin or Oxycontin or some, something similar to that. It's hard to judge dose sizes for unusually large men. This is, generally speaking, dosage for, say, putting someone under with anesthetic is usually a ratio, a simple like calculation based on how big they are. You go weight, dose size. But another calculation is if someone's an alcoholic, for example, they need a higher dose. What if they're Stanley Hudson? <laughs> How many rhino tranquilizers for them? <laughs> Good question. I was going to lead up to a, a story of an even larger person who, uh, in fact, I'm going to speak to another person who's gigantic. Andre the Giant, a person who had the same pituitary abnormality, who grew to abnormal size, drank constantly because he was in constant pain. His gigantism caused him great suffering. And he could drink unbelievable amounts of alcohol because he was A, drinking constantly and B, huge. I mean, the dude was like 600 pounds or something. There's, there's you see bumper stickers still to this day that have Andre the Giant's physical characteristics on them. Like it's some sort of calling card. It's a little strange. But 
Yeah. Wait, the, wait, what do you mean? What What about the bumper stickers? Yeah, there's bumper stickers. You'll see bumper stickers out in the world that say like seven foot five, 560 pounds, Andre the Giant. Okay, that's what I thought you were saying when you said they're his physical yeah. character. They literally just say his height and weight. Height and weight. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I bet you'll see people in the chat in a second say, yeah, I've seen those. And other people are going to be like, what? They're going to have your reaction like, what the hell? So Andre the Giant once had, he retired from professional wrestling because of his physical issues. However, they wanted to bring him back because he was so, so very popular. And he, they got him to agree to uh, have this experimental back surgery because, well, it might have fixed his problems. It might have helped his back. He has constant back issues. He was like, I'm willing to try that. So he goes to the operating room and the anesthetics, the anesthetist, anesthesiologist, I'm sorry, <laughs> says, like starts freaking out because he's like, I don't know what to do. I have no idea how much to give this guy. And no joke, Andre the Giant has drank over 100 beers in a single sitting before. That is not an exaggeration. He wants, at closing time at a bar, the bartender's like, time to go, we're closing. And Andre's like, I don't want to go. And the bartender's like, well, I wouldn't just say no to Andre the Giant. So here's the deal. You can stay as long as you keep drinking. The bar closed in the morning after Andre had finished his 40th vodka tonic. <laughs> 40! 40 <laughs> vodka tonics. I'm very sorry for my diversion away from A Song of Ice and Fire to talk about Andre the Giant, but it's such an amazing story that I encourage you to look up on your own. Look up the greatest drinker who ever lived. That's how he's referred to. But it does speak to this, that, that the mountain, that the dosage of the poison would not be even what an expert could gauge properly. And we also know that Oberyn slowed the poison so that it would ag and make be more agonizing. So he may have slowed it a bit too much. I'll bring it up right here. Someone, uh, Justin DL97 brought up that this, these are more reasons to think of the Princess Bride in this scene. Oh, good point. You're right. Yes, yeah. the six-fingered man. Yes. And, and you, Andre the Giant. We've got all this stuff with Oberyn. And Inigo Montoya. You could, God, I don't, yeah. you're totally it's, it's right. very right. Because Andre the Giant yeah. was in that movie. Yeah, just exactly. people were confused. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <dude. laughs> That's amazing. And in that movie, uh, they bring um, they bring Wesley back to life. <laughs> like Jon wow. Snow. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, the Princess Bride is totally a major influence. Of course it is, though. Right? It's a great movie. <laughs> of course, George has seen it and will unloved it. I bet he's seen it several times, like like a lot of us have. Okay, so back to it. <laughs> Gregor really. Like a, like a vindictive, petty brute that he is, he just gives everything right back to Oberyn, minus the suffering from being poisoned part. But the Son of Dorne maneuver, a shaft of sunlight in your eyes? Well, how about I, my steel gauntlets in your eyes? You know, how about mocking Ely about what he did to her? He returns the favor of the throbbing head of your, all your yelling is making my head hurt. Well, he certainly made Oberyn's head hurt. All of this, within all of this, I've already brought it up briefly, but it's just another... I have to say it again. It's a, it's a statement on the perils and futility of revenge. I mean, this is just a big, bloody mess. And we talk about this theme of revenge in Arya's storyline, in Lady Stoneheart's storyline, in Sandor's storyline, and it's about to be a big part of Tyrion's storyline as Oberyn's revenge arc ends because he ends, although there's other Martells to carry that forward. Tyrion is launched on his own revenge arc which is still very much in progress and one that is a big topic of debate. We're still looking for clues, what we might see coming. And we're going to have some more here in a minute because this next chapter is Daenerys 6. 
And she's thinking a lot about justice in that one. So here comes a man, Oberyn, that is, who we, we understand. We understand his desire for revenge. We may not understand his, his violence. We may not understand how his rudeness or his arrogance, but we understand that what happened to his family is something anyone would be upset about, something you would never forget about. Joe Buckley makes a great point here. This is a guy with everything. He's effectively doesn't have the responsibility of ruling because he's the second son. That's his brother's job. He has wealth. He has privilege. He has power. But he's focused on revenge. That's, that's what so much of his life has been about this one goal. I mean, he doesn't have much distracting him to yeah, draw him in. That's true. But he could, you know, he went to the Citadel. Like I would have preferred. Yeah, you're he just, right. He's tried. You could say that he's tried other things. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's true. These are all tr- him trying to escape. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Going to be a sellsword, he go kill some people. Yeah, <laughs> he's got to... this desire to kill Lannisters that he can't kill. Well, may as well go kill someone else. Oberyn just needs needed to find his life calling full <laughs> time. Yeah. This is also a, a perhaps a statement that Oberyn should never have been there in the first place. Ilaria, now, Ilaria has lost him. Doran has lost him. His daughters have lost him. There are whatever plans they had about Oberyn in the capital, Doran back at Sunspear making moves, whatever, whatever longer-term plan they had, whatever slow-burn plan they have, that's done now, at least temporarily. There was no plan for him to get involved in this trial by combat, obviously. I mean, they couldn't have known this opportunity would even be there. Why would, have, why would they have known a trial by combat would happen? But Oberyn just couldn't resist. This, and this is the brilliance of George's writing. We know logically what Oberyn should have done. <laughs> but we can't honestly say that were we in his place with his background and his attitudes and his love for Elia, that we wouldn't have done what he did. I'll repeat that George has cited Oberyn's death as a major reason for scrapping the five-year gap, a, a five-year jump, whatever you want to call it, which was supposed to happen right after this book. Cries of vengeance for the viper from the commons are echoed by the actions of the sand snakes right away in A Feast for Crows. This is what he feels like he could not skip. The Lannisters are not the only ones who pay their debts, but they aren't to be left out on that front in this chapter. There's a strong sense that Tyrion's long-simmering hatred of both the nobility and the commoners has festered. We've been dancing around that subject throughout this chapter, but now let's talk about it in earnest. From telling the people at the trial that he wishes he was the monster they think he is to the people on the street pointing at him on his way to the trial to Shay's condemnations and mockery to Tywin's complete unwillingness to defend Tyrion on any point whatsoever and his family coercing his confidant Shay into working against him. Well, yeah. Archmaester Emma uh, had a great take here from looking up a, a quote from A Clash of Kings from when Tyrion's recovering from the Blackwater battle. Quote, my work, they died at my command. So many dead, so very many. Why did I kill them all? He had known once, but had somehow forgotten. Yeah, he's, he's doped up on Milk of the Poppy. He's in a dream state here. So that's why it's a little disconnected, why there's ellipses in between every few words here. But it reads almost like regret that could apply to successfully achieving some sort of revenge goal and then sitting there realizing that, why? Why did I do this? Why would I kill all these people? Why would I lead? It's not there. You know, this is, this is too much. But he says, if he's, rather, if he's going from, I saved this vile city and all your worthless lives. I mean, he says that. There's no, there's no mistaking the bitterness. 
Is he going to come around or is he going to enact this revenge? Is this the kind of statement about why did I kill them all? Is this the kind of thing he's going to have after the fact? Or is he going to realize these are these dreams and these instincts going to lead to him realizing that he's on the wrong path before it's too late? Because a lot of commenters think that it'll be John Connington who blows up King's Landing, not Tyrion. And I can't deny, I can't argue with that. I, I don't know. I think that's a very valid. There's very strong reasons to think John Connington will do it. But there's also very strong reasons to think Daenerys will do it at Tyrion's urging and accidentally or intentionally bake the whole city. It could just be Danny gets blamed for it, but John Con does it. There's a lot of different inversions of this theory that involve all three of them or only one or two of them. And it's pretty hard to decide which is the most likely. It's notable to me too, like I said, that this is leading into a Danny chapter, which features her decision to settle in and rule amidst a lot of conflict in her mind regarding what constitutes justice. What is justice? What I don't think she would have seen this trial of Tyrion's as particularly just, but if she came in as an outsider and didn't have any new information, how would she know different? And she's having these thoughts about what constitutes justice right after she sacks Marine, right after her people sack Marine. But she'll also be banishing Ser Jorah, which is important because Tyrion is going to bump into Ser Jorah in Volantis, and that's going to put them on the arc together, heading back towards Danny. So Jorah betrayed Danny, and perhaps that's not forgivable, but he's valuable because he's willing to die for her. His methods and morals and ambitions are questionable. His devotion, though, isn't really. Tyrion, though? Is, would Tyrion, will Tyrion ever be that devoted to Danny? Maybe. It is possible. Maybe he'll fall in love with her or something. I'm not, there's no way to know at this point. Yeah, I, it makes me wonder. I mean, obviously, in the, in the original um, 1993 letter, how he talks about Tyrion falling for Arya, if yeah. this could be a translation of that. They, he wanted Tyrion to fall for someone. And have it be like a love triangle, right? And, and it could be Danny now. Yeah, because it was going to be Tyrion loving Arya, Arya loving Jon. And so this could be Tyrion, Danny, Jon. Yes. Without Arya in the mix yeah, at like, all. Just to, just to change it up a little bit. So yes, absolutely. And yes, it would, it would fit perfectly because Tyrion wants Danny, Danny wants Jon. Jon's like, John doesn't want anyone. John doesn't want anyone. Yeah, yeah. John's asexual or something. Yeah. <laughs> John's done with relationships. He may not even be able to have an erection. So, <laughs> yeah. So, what else I'm going to wonder about Tyrion? Is he going to start being clever again? It's been mentioned a lot about the TV show that it's like, wow, we really don't like watching unclever Tyrion. And it's, we want clever Tyrion back. But frankly, clever Tyrion's been gone for a while. Clever Tyrion has not really been here this entire book. Clever Tyrion ceased to be temporarily or forever, at the Battle of the Blackwater. His, during his recovery and his paranoia and his being rejected and pushed aside, he thought he was a hero, and he kind of was, and he didn't get treated that way. So it's the start of this, just how badly they view him, sank in. He was kind of around it before and just accepted that this is what they think of him, but he didn't realize just how bad it was. And so this bitterness has been growing this whole book, and it's just coming, coming to head here. So yeah, it's one of the reasons I like Clash of Kings more than a lot of other people is that it features clever Tyrion, which Game of Thrones has that too, but nothing, nothing comes close to Clash for clever Tyrion. Tyrion's musings about the possibility of taking the black in, while he's sitting in his cell are maybe a nod as well to other people who sat there while thinking about taking the black. We've talked about Ned before, but what about Bloodraven? 
because Bloodraven was condemned for the murder of Aenys Blackfire, which he did. <laughs> and he, I don't think he said otherwise. I doubt he said, I didn't do that. They just, some, they knew he did it. He said it out loud. He's like, he brought the head to council. Like, this is what happens to Blackfire. So there wasn't really any doubt there. But if we're being fair to the comparison, almost no one has any doubts Tyrion is guilty here. The readers are, we readers are sharing an unusual perspective in that almost everyone in the story thinks Tyrion did it. And for good reason, because it looks bad. The way it was arranged, the trial, the farce that it is to an outsider is effectively done as a deception. But why didn't Bloodraven ask for trial by combat? <laughs> that's, that's a question here. Why did he not say, hey, I demand trial by combat? But maybe it's because there's no doubt he was guilty. <laughs> maybe it's like, you can't have trial by combat when you admitted it. <laughs> so that could be, that could be the reason. Interesting symbolism here too. The mountain has the star of the faith painted over the dogs of Clegane on his shield to make him look more pious, to make him look like the, he's fighting for the faith here That because the, the gods are supposed to anoint the king and he's fighting for a murdered king. So it fits in with that. It's also the Lannisters just kind of getting away with whatever they want because it should be a king's guard fighting for a dead king here. But who's going to say no? Who's going to say it has to be a king's guard? <laughs> Oberyn? <laughs> no, because he wants to kill, he wants to kill that one. Tyrion maybe could have made that argument but it probably wouldn't have worked. And if he did do that, then Oberyn's like, well, I don't want to fight this other guy. I wanted to fight the mountain. But more on the point of the faith here. During the fight, Oberyn's spear eventually chips away the paint and you can see the dogs beneath, which is, I guess, suppose a symbolic realization is that you can't, you, you can put Gregor in a shield of the faith and put all the holy oils and all that. You can't change what he is. What he is underneath all that is the same as it's always been. And the fact that the Lannister regime is defending the murder of a king with this awful person, this brutal, violent rapist, he's their champion. He's the guy the gods have anointed as champion. This is your interpretation of, of the doctrine in this situation. It's a bad reflection on the Lannisters, but it's, it's typical of them. They don't care about being seen this way, or at least they think it's the the cost of doing business or something like that. It's a little sad that Tyrion doesn't properly understand what's going on with Podrick. Podrick, he asked Podrick if, do you, do you think I did it? And Podrick, he stammers like he always does. And Tyrion just takes that as, oh, he's afraid to say yes. But no, he's just stammering like he always does. I'm pretty sure Podrick is one of the, would have said, I don't think you did it as evidenced by the fact that Podrick can, continues to try to do his duty and follows Tyrion, tries to find him after the fact. That's not probably what, what he would have done if he believed he was guilty. Or maybe Podrick just takes his duties that seriously. Or both. I mean, you gotta like Pod. Joe Buckley has another really good take here about Gregor and evil and how he comes back. And how it's the physical nature of death is very separate from the idea that evil can be killed. Gregor comes back in a sense that evil cannot be killed. You cannot kill evil. You can maybe manage it. You can set it aside. You can, you can hold it back, but defeating it entirely, it'll, there'll always be more of it out there. And this guy, and Gregor is just so in a state that you would think he should be dead. He's got a spear through him. He's bleeding badly. He's poisoned. It just, but evil doesn't die so easily. 
that the name of your next movie? Evil doesn't die so easy. <laughs> die easy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah die. The sequel to Die Hard. The fifth sequel to Die Hard. They die did four easy. or five sequels. It's time to flip that franchise on its... <laughs> the happy version. Do you uh, really seem happy to die easily? I guess not. <laughs> What's the, so what's the deal if both combatants die simultaneously in a, in a trial by combat? How does it get judged? I mean, it's so close that they're, they almost both die at the same moment, but I don't know. Bigger question. You just say, we're all doomed. Yeah, both Winter sides. Winter is coming. <laughs> May the others take us all, et cetera. <laughs> we have uh, Lady Leaf Underhill says, I always thought Jamie could have saved Tyrion by offering to be his champion because they, would just not have, they wouldn't have allowed the fight to happen. Yeah, they would have just chosen a different champion or something. They would have, Done something to step in to keep Jamie from dying. I agree. There's that's that may have worked. Yeah, and it's an interesting authorial choice to have Jamie be so off in the distance. He doesn't come talk to Tyrion at all during this. He doesn't come talk to him until afterwards, which is possibly what George was trying to avoid, <laughs> having to manage that. Here's a quote that people wonder if it's evidence for the Oberyn poisoning Tywin theory. Lord Tywin's face was so dark that for half a heartbeat, Tyrion wondered if he'd drunk some poisoned wine as well. He might have. <laughs> if, it's, if, if Tywin was being poisoned, it's the slow poison, the kind that slowly shuts your bowels down, which was given to Cersei by Tyrion, but just a tiny bit to keep her away from council. A larger amount given regularly might be why Tywin was stuck on the privy when Tyrion comes up to find him and might be why his body stinks so badly during his funeral. Although part of that is just George leaning into what Tywin's life work is represented by, which is a stench. But we'll get to that and talk about it more when we get there. I do think there is evidence for Oberyn wanting to kill Tywin. And we certainly know he had the motivation and the means. For the second time <laughs> in this book, we get Oswald Kettleblack instead of Osmond Kettleblack. <laughs> so it seems that even the editors are confused by all the Kettleblacks because it's twice now where Osmond Kettleblack is called Oswald Kettleblack. There is no Oswald Kettleblack <laughs> except for in these ed editorial mistakes. So again, again, I will say if you're confused by the Kettleblacks, even the editors were confused by the Kettleblacks. Just as our last chapter, we end with a POV being taken away to the cells. Yep. John's was the same, kind of. Uh, John's a little more able to get out of his. Still, that's our last little parallel for this chapter. And now we move on to our last one of the day. Daenerys 6, A Tale of Two Slaver Cities, a.k.a. the one where Jorah is banished. In typical fashion, George delays us from learning anything further and having any resolution about Tyrion by zipping us all the way over to Slaver's Bay. On the other hand, these two are going to come together later, and so we should be on the lookout for parallels and what is going on between what's coming for Tyrion and what's happening for Danny now and how that will change if and when they're together. We got to see the events of Astapor on page. Yunkai fell off page. This chapter, we see the reaction, but we don't actually see the battles or anything like that. It's all after the fact, which is fine. No, I'm not complaining, certainly, but it's a huge jump between Danny 5 and Danny 6 because so much happens off page. 
Not only do we have the turtle comparison with John's chapter, but Danny sending men through the sewers to open the gates from the inside while the rest of Marine is distracted by her frontal assaults is kind of similar to Mance sending the Thens over the wall while the Castle Black is distracted to open the gates while no one's paying attention. Pretty similar. Quote. Danny broke her fast under the persimmon tree that grew in the terrace garden, watching her dragons chase each other about the apex of the Great Pyramid where the huge bronze harpy once stood. Yeah. Daenerys sees the, quote, fantastic and, quote, savage harpy throne of Marine and has it destroyed and burned, maybe foreshadowing the destruction of the Iron Throne, especially whether intentional or not, because the throne could be destroyed in either of those scenarios, or in a variety of scenarios, really. Here's another quote that shows Danny's state of mind changing. Up here in her garden, Danny sometimes felt like a god living atop the highest mountain in the world. Do all gods feel so lonely? Some must, surely. And she's being treated as a god by her followers and has gone from victory to victory to victory. She's being physically placed far above the common people now by sitting atop this giant pyramid. She's not used to any of this. When she was with Drogo, she shared all of that. He was the center of attention. He was the great leader and she was, you know, secondary. In this book, she spent her whole time on a ship or on the march. And now she's topped this great pyramid of all this luxury. But really, as I'm not trying to say she's, it's going to her head too much because while it might eventually... She spends this time thinking about how to be a just and kind ruler and to work through these very difficult issues. It might sound ironic to, to hear that when she's just sacked a city, but she's sacked a slaver city. She's sacked the slaver. That's what she's aiming for. Yes, there was collateral damage. She harmed people that probably didn't deserve it. But how do you extract the slavery from the city? How do you take that down without harming some other people? And that's, well, I don't know, but I do know that Danny is thinking about it and she's putting in legitimate effort to figure out what's an impossible question. I mean, we could sit here and debate this all day. We would never get to an answer. We would not have an answer on how best to dismantle thousands of years of slavery, right? And this is part of the groundwork for her relationship with Miss Sandy because she feels betrayed despite the victory because of what's happening in the city and how it's playing out. And... Of course, she's just been betrayed by Jorah, and that's still on her mind. And she's thinking of Barristan. She hasn't forgiven Barristan yet, so she's still thinking he's a big liar too. And in, these mo- in this lonely moment is part of where the relationship with Missandei develops. Now, I love their relationship, but I call it a relationship, not a true friendship, because it's a lot like what Stannis and Davos have. They're too separate in their social status. There's too, they're too different in their backgrounds to understand each other fully, but they make a lot of effort to respect each other and they get along really well. So I don't, wouldn't argue with someone who calls them, calls them friends, but personally, you, I think there's some, some barriers in play. Do you think, how, how much of a healthy fear do you think Missandei has of Danny? Good does, question. Does Missandei think Danny would ever hurt her? I think she has hope that Danny would never hurt her and being rescued from this hopeless situation would be some cause for optimism. But but Masande is not nearly as naive as as a 10-year-old girl you would expect to be. Yeah, I'm picturing, for example, Davos. I don't think Davos has any illusions of the fact that Stannis would have him killed if he needed to. 
Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, that's a good point. I think Masande knows that if she betrays Danny, their friendship means, you know, their friendship, their relationship would not be enough to save her. Yeah, but, I, uh, well, depends on, I, I feel Well, it depends like, on the circumstances, potentially. Yeah, but. I feel like she probably thinks that she wouldn't be killed. Yeah. I think, yeah, maybe. I mean, if she, she did like a, a thing like Davos did where she steals away with a child to prevent it from being killed and tells her why she did it, Danny might have mercy on her. Yeah, I don't think, yeah. Dan, I, I think Danny would, would t- handle that situation perhaps even better than Stannis would. But certain other types of, of uh, betrayals, that, that depends. I don't it's know. It's hard to imagine Masande betraying anyone. Yeah, it is. Oh, that's true too. It's, it's, it's probably an academic question. <laughs> <laughs> There's more parallels here. Melisandre continuously mistakes Stannis for Danny, <laughs> and they have so many parallels and connected themes. And well, that theme is exten- expanded because, of course, Stannis is such a big character about all about justice and you know his lack of mercy and his different takes on justice. But his consistency is really important too. Now, Danny is ruling a city for the first time. She's obviously handled leadership. I mean, you can maybe say Vase Taloro is a city, but I, I don't really count that. There was hardly anybody there. She hangs looters and gelds rapers within her own army, right? That's exactly the kind of thing we see from Stannis. He's like, no, even my sacks will be orderly. You will not rape. You will not steal. We take the city. It's a military engagement. It's a process. It's not a chaotic thing that you get to just run around and do whatever you want once we get inside the city. So there's a very familiar kind of tendency towards order and not allowing and minimizing damage to innocence. Yet there is still a lot of the latter, damage to innocence. And that is, as I said, something Danny is really struggling with how to handle that. It seems impossible to fight evil, to destroy these evil systems without also harming innocence. And while doing this, she thinks about human justice, but she also thinks about the gods because, hey, she's feeling a little like one in this moment. And that takes her, uh, takes her mind towards real gods and how maybe they handle these things. The Red Priests believed in two gods, she had heard, but two who were eternally at war. Danny liked that even less. She would not want to be eternally at war. Yeah, that's good for her that she doesn't want to be eternally at war. But this is still pretty ominous because even when Danny isn't at war, she will be at war, meaning, I mean, eternally at war. <laughs> I mean, right? And it's a comparison to John's predicament. He might come back to look upon these three battles at the wall as a simpler time. I mean, he's exhausted, he's frayed, but it might be worse, it's sad to say. And it's definitely simpler. I mean, he's not having to rule much. He's leading, but it's, it's just a battle, right? Having to rule cities, regions, that's so much more complicated, so much slower, so much more uncertainty. Danny might feel that way about Slaver's Bay in the long run. The lost trust she's experienced is part of why she's leaning more on these thoughts of gods and thoughts of gods also means thoughts of prophecy. Clearly speaking of gods and such, leaning too much into prophecy. You can see why if she starts to just stop taking advice from people, why she would start listening to things like this more. And that's not great. Check out this quote. The dragon has three heads. There are two men in the world who I can trust if I can find them. I will not be alone then. We will be three against the world like Aegon and his sisters. Okay, so you can really see her setting herself up here kind of badly in a very unfortunate way. She's telling herself there's only two men in the world she can trust. Might be true even, which is even harsher. But 
she's kind of setting herself up to not trust anyone but these two other dragon riders. And if these other two dragon riders end up betraying her also, then we can start to see why Danny would find herself kind of hopeless and maybe turn on everyone. We three against the world, like Aegon and his sisters. I mean, that sounds a lot like the description of the Red God being in eternal war as well. And the two men are probably the two dragon riders, if we're going with our best guesses, Jon Snow and Tyrion Lannister. And it won't be, it, it won't be against the world. It'll be against the others. But after that, after the others are beaten, presuming they are, <laughs> then maybe it'll be those three against the world. And that's when the disagreements will, will probably start. Because if they haven't already, I mean, parentage will come out, things like that. You know, do I really want to be sleeping with my uncle slash aunt? Uh, you know, things like that. That's those are going to come in a similar way to come along and make things not so simple. It won't just be about the fighting anymore. When we covered Astapor, we jumped ahead to show how bad it got there before Danny herself learned of how bad it got there. But here, that news comes. She does learn now. This is when it comes. We're going to have to deal with some of the consequences of Danny's liberation, both intended and unintended. Of course, so will she. Quotes. When the last resistance had been crushed by the unsullied and the sack had run its course, Danny entered her city. She rode past burned buildings and broken windows, through brick streets where the gutters were choked with the stiff and swollen dead. Cheering slaves lifted bloodstained hands to her as she went by and called her mother. So this the sack is a bit troubling. Of course, as we've discussed before, it's probably a nicer sack than most, but still, it's a sack. <laughs> Cell swords are in there, even though the Unsullied are not going to do any sacking. But we already saw that she hanged a lot of people and cut off a lot of members. So that clearly indicates there was a lot of crimes. And there's an extra variable here, the slaves themselves. The ones, some of the slaves rose up and murdered their masters. And well, that's... Okay, according to Danny, but some of them did more killing beyond that. Some of them killed the children of slavers, which is, ah, what do you do about that? These are going to definitely grow into slave owners, but you, you don't, like John, like Ned says, you don't kill children for the evil you think they'll do later. You kill them only for evil they do that they actually do. And yeah, so this is very troubling. And Again, this is why we just don't have answers. I, 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 I'm a little bothered by people who overly judge Danny, Danny's handling of the situation because there is no path here that isn't bloody. There is no way to do this, in my mind, without this being, without collateral, serious collateral damage to innocence. I just don't think it's possible. I mean, you can't overthrow an entrenched situation, a society like this. It's been this way for thousands of years. I just don't see how she could have done much better with what she knew and what she had. Yet she still tries more. She still thinks I didn't, I could have done this better. So she's not sitting back, resting on her laurels, like, ah, look how great I am. Immediately upon victory, she's thinking about how she could have done better. She makes her first decree as ruler of Marine, and it's kind of brutal. But again, is it unfair? I don't know. Here's the quote. I want your leaders, Danny told them. Give them up and the rest of you shall be spared. 
How many? One old woman had asked, sobbing. How many must you have to spare us? 163, she answered. So the point of 163 is it's the same number of children named posts. Is like we've asked, is this clean? No. Is it utterly good? No. Is it justice? Probably. It's close if not. Again, we come back to Stannis. One bad turn deserves another. Good acts don't wash out the bad. Good acts seem to be lacking in Marine. Justice is the bottom line, and no one seems to be in a rush calling Stannis mad either. That's the point, right? I was, I was referring to before, like people call Danny mad. Here's this evidence of her madness. I don't think it is. It might be evidence, it might be foreshadowing for later madness, but this itself, this is conscientious. This is thoughtful. This is an attempt at justice, and it is very similar to what Stannis would do. And like Joe says, people don't really call Stannis mad. So there it might be some gendering in, in that uh, distinction there. She thinks to herself, harsh justice is still justice. That sounds pretty Stannis-like, right? But also, you can't really deny it, too. Later in this chapter, the issue of Targaryen madness is going to be brought up. So it's appropriate to think about here because Barristan mentions it. But anger isn't madness. <laughs> when she's mad about what those men did to, the, did to 163 children, like, that's a fair reason to be mad, right? I mean, yeah. There's a lot of parallels, like we said, to John, a lot of touchstones for Tyrion, but there's some Rob here too. Danny, like Rob, brave and clever, similar age, knack for battle plans and struggling with politics, though she's going to have much more, much better chance to make that work. But it still may not. It still probably won't in the long run. Taking apart the ships and turning them into battering rams was her idea. That's a good one. And it was clever to distract the approach of her sewer rats by putting the full force of her army at the walls and by setting fires to the ships. But also like Rob, cleverness is not enough when it comes to ruling. It's great for battlefields. She's a natural leader like Rob, but ruling and leading are not the same thing. They're actually kind of dissimilar in a lot of ways. Robert Baratheon's a fantastic example. Amazing battle leader, about as good as it gets horrible ruler, right? So one of the mistakes Danny may have made that she may be now realizing is that she left a council to rule in Astapor and didn't leave them any military support. Too blatantly obvious, as it turns out, especially trying to install a council of rulers who aren't the normal style of rulers, who haven't worked together before. And so it was ripe for a violent coup. Cleon the Butcher at its head, and then we get this messenger who is saying Cleon is this and this and that, and it sounds like a lot of BS, like he's making a bunch of, bunch of stories up and would not take him at his word. We do hear that Yunkai is mustering armies and hiring swords. That, I would believe, because of course they are, and it is true, and this is a problem for her because if she had managed Yunkai better, or rather Astapor better, this Astapor might be an uh, helping her right now uh, get with her managing a Marine instead of supporting the elements that seek to overthrow her. However, it's another example where even if she had done all the perfectly right things, it still might not have worked out. Also, the effect of Astapor falling apart again means more refugees. She, that's something she's learning quite well because she's seeing a lot of it. She, the effect of freeing slaves and, and breaking cities is that it creates a lot of refugees. 
So this is a big struggle for her because she doesn't know what to do about it. There's not enough food. And we're going to see later, it's going to get as bad as bad as it can with disease sweeping through a lot of these refugee camps. Gail, who is the uh, messenger from Astapor, brings the first of many, many marriage proposals. And of course, Danny is not interested in, in Cleon at all. And Missande very cleverly asks if Cleon had any sons. <laughs> and the messenger is like, uh, no, he had daughters, but he's going to have sons. Oh, he'll have sons for sure. Yeah, just skip it time. She thinks of Eroa, of course. Aroa is the symbol of innocence being caught up in all this. She is the face of collateral damage. That's probably the best way for me to put it here. Someone she's tried to save and failed to, and she wants to do better next time. She's like, well, how can I... I don't want to have another Aroa situation, but it's inevitable. She's There's lots more Aroas have been created, but if she didn't step in, it's tens and thousands and millions of slaves living their lives as that in, in misery and torture and defeat and hopelessness. So a thousand Eroas is better than that. If you're making a spreadsheet, I don't know. I mean, again, it's so difficult to weigh lives against other lives. But when it's laid out like this for Danny, if we want to engage with what's in her mind, we have to have these same uncomfortable thoughts ourselves. So this, the theme gets even trickier when Danny learns that some slaves had their lives get worse by being freed. They want to go back to slave, being enslaved because, well, they're a bit older. They don't have a time to start over. Their life is, you know, they have a least, they're treated decently by some of these families. It's too late for them. The younger slaves maybe can start over, but these ones, it's just so hard to consider, but so real. It's accurate. You would, this is not some, this isn't George's imagination making up situations that probably aren't realistic. This definitely is a real thing. People have, freed slaves have wanted to return to their masters before. This is not an invented moment. Also good to see Danny being more aware about the storm crows and the sellswords. It's part of, they're some of the worst amongst the people doing the sacking probably, but also she's aware that sending the Stormcrows out to, to collect taxes would both be violent and definitely corrupt because they would steal some of that money. So that's a good sign. It's kind of like she's learning a lot of these things that are going to be really important in order to rule a city. So in conclusion about these moral conundrums, rather than try and persuade us, George is not putting his thumb on the scale one way or the other saying, this is what I want you guys to feel. He's just showing us how difficult this all is. There's no single decision Danny can make that won't just create more problems. It's all about what creates less suffering. There's no move she has for most of these large-scale events that can avoid suffering. So it's all about just trying to minimize that. It's a comment on what ruling is, which is a theme throughout these, these endgame chapters, but this one perhaps more than any other. And Danny second-guesses herself a lot because... They entertained other ideas, but she'll never know if those would have worked better. She doesn't know if what plan she could have done at Astapor could have worked better. She doesn't know if leaving Unsullied there would have actually made a difference. So these are the kind of things that you can kind of, you can kind of see why this would make her more anxious and, and not mad, not madness, but just constantly thinking and overthinking and obsessing and wondering if she could have done better and how that's going to take a toll. But she does have a few moments of peace and we get some respite as she does. And here's a quote. 
The air was chilly, but she liked the feel of grass between her toes and the sound of the leaves whispering to one another. Wind ripples chased each other across the surface of the little bathing pool and made the moon's reflection dance and shimmer. This chapter in Danny Starmark closes with a scene of this beautiful writing. It's nice to see some tranquility before uh, to pair it up against all this turmoil and frustration and uncertainty. So it, ge- it does show that she has this mode. She can still do this. She can still find her peace, even amidst all this. And that's a good sign because you need, everyone needs to be able to step aside from whatever's stressing them out or an- making them anxious. It's great to have an escape temporarily. And of course, conquering cities and claiming victories and it's the metal chair. That's not what she wants, right? It's not about that chair. She wants it to mean something. She wants the chair because she can use it to protect people and to do right. She also wants it because she thinks it's her birthright. And a great quote to end the chapter. What will you do then, Khaleesi? Asked Ricaro. Stay, she said. Rule and be a queen. Again, the parallels to John's ending that we've yet to come are outstanding. That is such a a great line. And we were about to have John become Lord Commander. And he's got to be Lord Commander. (laughs) He's got to do his job. Duty calls. And, you know, this is a separate set of duties, but it's a similar instinct. It's a similar virtue. And you really like it. I mean, if Danny had just up up and left, she would have just created another Astapor. So she's learned from a pretty decent-sized mistake. She's taken it very seriously. Image of crucified Miranese uh, leaders is very symbolic too. It underlines the shared guilt of slavery. The pointing of the fingers is what we mean here. The slavers had used the bodies of slave children to send a mocking message like, if you want to get to Marine, follow this path. And then when she has them impaled, they're pointed at the next because every single one of them is passing the buck. It's like a symbol of them passing the buck. Oh, he did it. Oh, no, he did it. No, he did it. And then if you just put them in a circle, they all are pointing at each other. So they're all guilty, some degree or another, supporting an evil system. And I'm sympathetic to people within a system that have no ability to change it. But from Daenerys' point of view, she can't pick and choose which of these slavers are the ones coerced and which are the ones in it. There's no way to tell. So they just have to go. Important to note during the... It's nice that we already covered back up a little bit. It's nice that we kind of already covered Jorah's apology, his bad apology. There's very little of it left to to discuss, but I will say a few things. But according on on that subject, important to note that according to Jorah, Varys wanted Danny watched, but alive. Like this is part of his like, no, please understand, blah, blah, blah. When he doesn't actually apologize or say sorry, but (laughs) it's a reminder of what Varys has been doing here. And the idea that she was a distraction for Aegon to come in and save the realm. But of course, they did not foresee the dragons. Barristan's connection to Danny's family is quite a revelation for her. He's, she's like, oh, wow, yeah, this guy knew my dad, my granddad, my mom, a lot of other people like that, a lot of my family, Rhaegar, a bunch of people. And well, she thinks about that and it's an interesting quote. Most of what she knew of Westeros had come from her brother, and the rest from Ser Jorah. Ser Barristan would have forgotten more than the two of them had ever known. This man can tell me where I came from. I, I honestly remain a little miffed at this quote, not the quote itself, but the what it's implying, because 
this doesn't really happen all that much. I mean, it does happen some. They discuss her family a bit, but only a bit. I want more of Barristan telling Danny of, of her family's history, I tell you. And well, may, we may not get that. We covered Jorah's bad argument, like I said. It, it, so it's more of, the, more of the same here. But I do want to say he may receive forgiveness. We do, last we see him, he's joined the Second Sons with Tyrion. He's just killed the Giscari commander that tried to issue them orders. And Jorah did that to force the Second Sons to switch back to Danny's side. It works. Brown, Brown Ben Plum may have been planning on doing that anyway. It's not clear. He certainly says it was the case, but whether it's true or not is up to us to decide. When it comes to justice, Danny starts to be a little more pragmatic about it. She starts to listen a little bit to Dario, which it's just one piece of advice. You don't really want her to listen to Dario, but you kind of see where he's coming from. She says you should have killed him or kept him. No banishing. Banishing was the worst of the third of the three options there. Forgive him or kill him. And to me, that's a little bit like what Eamon says to John when he says, kill the boy, become a man. Danny here is trying to kill the girl and her and becoming a queen. I'll stay and rule and be a queen. And these are these, these kind of tough decisions like this are, are in that along those same lines because she's putting, it's not about her. Jorah being out there puts her rule in, in danger. She's worried about that. If he works against her, of course, we know he's not going to because he's just so besotted. But as a risk, it's not a personal risk she's taking. She's like, I don't want to kill him. I'm willing to take that personal risk to me to not do this deed that I think is, is unethical. But it's not about her. It's about this kingdom she's ruling. If she dies, a lot of things fall apart. Her person needs to be protected for reasons other than her personal life and her, her own morals and, and her own things like that. She has duties that go beyond that. Speaking of uh, switching sides, which some people see Barristan swearing to Danny as evidence he'll stay true to her. He says, to the end of my days. A couple people, Nina and some other commenters point out, he, this is a very carefully made choice that Danny is exhibiting qualities that none of the other kings he's served exhibited, that this is a careful, cautious decision. On the other hand, he, when he's swearing to her, he points out that she's the true-born heir of Westeros, which might not be true. And if, if it is true, he may believe otherwise. He may think that Rhaegar's son, even if he's not really Rhaegar's son, he may think that's really Rhaegar's son, and that would be the true-born heir of Westeros, using normal rules and uh, the way claims pass. So... I think it's still very much up in the air, but I do see both sides of the argument. He also mentions, Barrison, that is, Aerys' reign beginning with such promise before going sour. Is that not what we're looking at with Danny here? I don't know that Danny's reign will go sour. I think there's a decent chance it will, but she's starting off with such promise. To be fair, Danny's promising start is vastly more promising than Ares's as far as a display of talent and skill, intelligence and things like that. Bravery, again, Ares was not that. But the point isn't about their accomplishments or their talents. When, when Barristan brought up that Ares's reign began with promise, it's because he wasn't mad. That's what he meant. It, it, was refer, it was a statement on his lack of madness. It was a statement on how that came later. Barrison also mentions the notorious Targaryen sanity coin flip, but there's an argument against that because for Ares, he didn't, he wasn't born mad. He may have had some tendencies, may have had some genetic markers that made that more likely or something like that. 
But he's arguably more nurture than nature, too. He was traumatized by Summerhall, endless stillbirths, paranoia, Duskendale. Lots of things went wrong in his life, and he wasn't a super smart guy. So, honestly, it was probably nature and nurture. I guess you probably wouldn't call Aegon the Unworthy a bad coin flip, would you? He's like, I mean, he was good. Like, as a young person, he was good. He just... You know, yeah. like Robert went to excess in the wrong way, but it also seemed like very yeah. much like he was not, I don't know. He wasn't, uh, he was cruel. He he had some, I think, cruel tendencies from the beginning. Yeah, he wasn't mad. But he wasn't mad. And I don't think he was even mad at the end. But uh, but he was someone who was good, who became bad. Yeah, he didn't start off, or at least not bad yeah. that became bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> someone who went downhill, yeah. And so it's another example, as Ashea mentions, Aegon the Fourth paired up with Robert Baratheon, paired up with Ares. These are people who went downhill when they got the throne. (laughs) The promise of Ares was a lot before he got the throne. Like he was a a prince that wasn't insane and he looked okay then. Tywin didn't have, Tywin and him were friends then. So it is, there is a big statement about the power being the difference here. The power of the throne going to their head, the, Having that much power is, is a difficult thing for one person to manage. And with all of George's statements on rulership and how no matter what a ruler in this state can do, it's always going to lead to to destruction and, and innocent lives lost. That could be the real one of the major condemnations here. It's a condemnation of this system of monarchy and it goes to show why it can never work because anyone being given that much power, even someone with these extremely noble intentions like Daenerys Targaryen, even her, it's too much. Even she can be corrupted by this much power, by being treated like a god, by being called mother by people who aren't your child. This, her great decency does not mean she has a limitless supply of whatever emotion and instinct prevents hubris from growing. Whatever instinct, whatever it is within us that's corrupted by power, it isn't something we can say Danny has. We don't know. We haven't seen it yet. And it's not something that automatically applies to everyone who's a good person. We've all seen powerful people go too far. And Danny might be end up being one of them. Uh, Leah Rubenfeld, I was going to ask you for your thoughts about the persimmon when you were talking about the fruit in Sansa's chapter. Anything about the symbolism? I did not bring up anything about the persimmon, but it looks like I grabbed some Ashea stuff. got my back. Yeah, it, it, from the actual Wikipedia page for persimmons, it goes into the etymology, and it's a Greek uh, etymology specifically. It can be translated a few different ways, but what matters here is the popular etymology because George likes to look at popular histories and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But the popular etymology basically calls it divine fruit. Divine fruit. Yeah, God's pear, you know, Jove's fire. So basically, it's very much a symbol of Danny right there. And in that very scene, she's thinking about being like a god. We see so many different scenes with Danny and persimmons. Sometimes she refuses the persimmons. And other times she gives it as a gift. So yeah, anyways, I have uh, very worthwhile to go back through and look at all the persimmon scenes with Danny. Very true. But, I'll be uh, keeping my fitting. eye open for persimmon from now yeah. on. <laughs> cool. Thank you very much for that, Leah, and for Michelle for looking that up. Very cool. Oh, also yeah. um, notable is that persimmons tend to be pretty bitter. 
And oh, really? And just like what Danny's <laughs> going like it's a bittersweet t- kind of thing. Yeah, it really like, is. Very much. She's thinking about how alone she is. So, yeah. Hmm. I have done a lot of today talking about Danny's earnest attempts. A lot of y'all are on the same page there. A lot of commenters just overwhelmingly noticing how earnest her attempts are here and how deeply and sincerely her inner thoughts are with regards to sorting through the challenges of ruling. But again, I come back to George R. R. Martin might just be telling us that there is no way through this without it being bloody and and bad. There is nothing here. There is no end game that's positive when it comes to monarchies and kingdoms and thrones. There is no happy ending for such a scenario. That might be what we're faced with, (laughs) y'all. But maybe not. We shall see. We shall see. That is all for today. This week, last week we covered 178 minutes and 18 seconds. This week, 173 minutes, 10 seconds. This was a longer episode than last week by a good bit. But there was a lot of endgame stuff. Danny's last chapter. Tyrion's arc is so huge. Sansa's arc is changing dramatically. There's so many reveals and with Littlefinger telling all these things. So I'm not surprised it was one of our longer ones in a while. So far, we've covered 2,519 minutes and 48 seconds out of 2,854 seconds, 27 seconds. So only about 330-ish minutes left, which we'll be covering across the span of two episodes. Always, As always, check out the podcast version and compare it to the video to see how much we edit out each time. Next time up, we've got Jamie 9, the one without sex in White Sword Tower, a.k.a. Brienne's Shard of Ice. John 10, the one where John is sent to kill Mance, a.k.a. Stop, Stannis time. <laughs> Arya 13, the one where Sandor gets no mercy, a.k.a. Have Coin, Will Travel. Sam 4, the gang calls a vote, a.k.a. the one where Sam... Thanks of the children. <laughs> and John 11, the one with Stannis's indecent proposals, a.k.a. the Winterfell Dilemma. I mentioned I mentioned a few weeks ago that we're going to start trying to have a little section at the end here where I shout out our own episodes <laughs> for things that we've expanded on in the past that are touched on here that we didn't have enough time to go nearly as deep on. Summer Hall episodes we've mentioned before, they come up again here with the Aerie stuff, but also with uh, the... Danny's family history and with, with regards to Rhaegar and all that. But also the Barris and Kristen Cole recent episode is um, relevant to whether or not he'll turn. It's also just an exploration of his life. And we recorded or we're going to record a Serwin of the Mirror Shield episode kind of soonish. And that's also got more on Barristan and Kristen Cole as well as, you know, Serwin and Eric and Arik and some other cool people. So until then... Thanks to all of y'all for coming and watching live. Thanks to anyone who likes and shares and spreads the word. You might be surprised how much that helps the show. Ashe is the best, managing so much at once, handling the video and the technical side, managing the chat, and looking things up on Wikipedia. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that's damn. why I was delayed on some quotes. I was reading about persimmons. <laughs> it's, I was like, oh, we're back. <laughs> so many interesting things to be looking at, right? <laughs> Sometimes when I'm trying to like write these documents. I'm like, I, I literally start typing a new sentence before I finish the one I'm on. I like space, space and just start typing yeah. the next sentence because I don't want to lose a, my a, thought. Yeah, it's a very uh, good strategy. I've had to do that before as well. It just happens <laughs> so much with the Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thanks also to Joe and Nina for their excellent contributions to this and so many other episodes during Valerie Redis. Thanks to our awesome History of Westeros mods. That would be Scott, Tommy, Rebecca, Jennifer, uh, Ari, and I always leave off one person. Laura, of course. I would uh, all my all of them who are my friends. So Laura, yeah, Laura Brandos, Lady of Infinity. I, every time I list them, I, I say five and then forget the six, and it's always a different six each time. I should go ahead and put their names in the document. How about that? Mm. <laughs> also, thanks to anyone who is signing up for Flick, Facebook, Slack, or Discord and participating in the chats. I get so much from you guys that at least. If it's not quoted here, it sends me in the right direction and I do digger deeper digging and find great things or at least interesting things. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld and his great website, clarodox.de. He's also responsible for helping find us the music for Valar Revitas a la Kevin McLeod. Thanks also to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for our regular intro outro music, our engineer for helping make the pod sound better, and all of you who support us financially on Patreon, our last but definitely not least, we wouldn't be here at all without you guys. Sign up if it's within your means and your interest. We would love to have you as a supporter. And check out Here Be Dragons covering Willow, the movie Willow with Mad Mardigan and all that greatness. I loved Willow. That was a great movie back in the day. I wonder how it holds up now. Well, I guess we'll find out. And so will you if you check in with Steven and his friends on the stream, which I highly encourage. Starting in just a couple minutes if you're watching this live. Until next time, we'll see you next week. Valar Reredis.